Welcome back to another episode of the Bigger Than Me podcast. Here is your host, Aaron P. Freedom of expression is a topic we cover a lot in this podcast. I think it's important that we do so. We're seeing government censorship and increasing self-censorship by people afraid to share their political views on a variety of issues. My guest did that courageously, shared his perspectives, and ended up being cancelled by friends and community members. Despite this, he was willing to persevere and continue to share his perspective on a variety of issues and remain independent, thoughtful, and courageous throughout his entire journalistic career. My guest today is Rav Aurora. We've been looking at doing this for a while. I'm so thrilled to have you on. Would you mind introducing yourself for people who might not be acquainted with your work? Sure. Uh, Rav Aurora, independent journalist. Um, started writing in 2020, um, especially after the George Floyd protests and riots. Mm-hmm. I published this big piece on uh, the fallacies of white privilege and the toxicity of identity politics. And that piece just kind of took off and just one thing led to another. And yeah. surprise, three years later, I'm a journalist now, which I, I, I had no expectation or anticipation that I'd be here. But it's a uh, an interesting place where I can kind of follow my curiosity. We'll definitely get there. But I think when we're talking about politics and political issues, yeah. it's important to humanize the person. It's so easy to get caught on a political point and forget yeah. that you're a human being, you have family members, you have loved ones, you're a person first. So yeah. can you start with your background, your family, where you grew up and your connections to Canada and, and being Sure. Yeah. I also just want to say something quickly was, uh, I think you asked me to be, do the podcast, I think, was it last year or was it the year before? I think I think I, I, I think yeah it was uh, yeah it was at least last year and I last year I was just in a very tough place right. personally and I it, it took many many sessions of of deep diving and therapy and looking at child you mentioned childhood like childhood background and different difficult issues like nothing extreme nothing like like no violent abuse or beating or like anything like that but just some childhood issues that were kind of bubbling up um, in this way and all this like fear and anxiety and kind of depression that I was working through last year. So I remember I remember when you hit me up and I know we would do like a long form conversation. I just wasn't in the right headspace to have a conversation like that that wasn't like strictly political, which I know yeah. this is not going to be. Yeah. So I was doing like all sorts of different interviews, the quick, you know, 10 minute Ben Shapiro, yeah. The Hill Rising, uh, Daily Wire stuff. But I was really refraining from doing anything um, long form or personal um, because I knew it would potentially trigger certain things that just wouldn't sit with me the right way. And so that's why I'm I'm glad to finally be here, though, because it's been it's been a good year um, so far with a lot of uh, interesting personal progress. So I'm glad to to be here and, and chat. It's a pleasure. So would you mind taking me back? Can you tell me about your family moving here? You have some really interesting stories about how hard your parents worked in order to give you a quality life yeah. here. Yeah. So parents are from India, from uh, Amritsar, mm-hmm. of Sikh background. Um, although my mom is, she's, her, her father was Hindu, but her mom was Sikh. So Hindu and Sikh kind of upbringing. Um, we weren't, I would say, um, practicing religious people for much of the time. I mean, at at certain points, my mom and my dad were um, encouraging certain religious uh, views, but they definitely weren't um, as um, strictly enforcing it the way other family members or friends were. Um, but they 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 were very very hardworking. Um, dad was driving taxi. Mom was uh, working at a local restaurant, the Wildcat Grill in Rosedale. You might have been to, of course. Um, great food there, and uh, 
yeah, it's, you know, growing up, um, I, I, I would say this is the, like the most most surface level out of out of all the kind of challenges. But one of the ones which it's it's on the one hand it's a surface level thing, but it was very difficult was the the financial um, issues that we had. We almost lost our house, almost went bankrupt, or did go bankrupt uh, when we were when me and my brother were very very young, mm-hmm. and so um, it was uh, yeah it, it it was it was a challenge at times with putting. Not not food on the table, but just like growing up, like every Christmas, like we always wanted like the big Xbox, PS3 stuff, and we never got it, and that was always like a thing. Um, this kind of financial and economic insecurity that was kind of part of our childhood, which later on did change as my dad um, founded his new company, the Cosmic Data, and it started going really well. And obviously, with me being my own journalist now and starting my own company and stuff, things have changed pretty rapidly. But I'll, I'll never forget some of those roots where, you know, you know, want something really bad, want to go to different restaurants or get like the new sickest toy, but, you know, not having enough money for it. It's, it's, it's very, very humbling. And I think very, very important to have had that experience in this age of just extreme abundance and just getting everything and Amazon prime your way through whatever you want, you know, instant gratification, that kind of stuff. What did you learn from the sacrifices that your parents made for you? I think I learned that there is a a higher purpose that we should strive for and that sacrifices are necessary to make. So they, I mean, they sacrificed so much for my brother and myself and my little sister to have a good life and working tirelessly, night shifts, day shifts, multiple, my mom was working multiple jobs uh, at one point. And so that that's something that I think is is very, very important is that resilience and that putting someone else above yourself and working towards giving them a good life over, you know, sacrificing your own comfort and your own luxury, which is what they did. What was what is the story of being an immigrant from your perspective as somebody who's watched individuals go through this, move to a new country, start to try and build roots and connect with the community? I find the immigrant story in a lot of circumstances, very inspiring because they're willing to travel to a new country, willing to make sacrifices, but in a healthy country, in good circumstances, there will be opportunity to find your way in that country despite not having those social connections and make a better life for your family. How do you think about the immigrant story? Yeah. Well, I was born in India and then went to London uh, and then came here when I was about four or five. So for me, reality has always just kind of started when I was in Canada. Yeah. I don't really remember uh, being born in, born in India or living in uh, the UK. Um, but in terms of my parents and what they've had to face and our kind of collective process, um, I, I mean, I, I will say I have a lot of gratitude for the fact that I have that diversity of background. And so I've just, I, I look at, reality maybe in a more um complex way than someone you know born in the same environment and you know their their surrounding environments the same as their home environment and you know everything aligns whereas for me it's been you know mom and dad have had you know different views and perspectives on social and political and just family issues and the kind of psychological and interpersonal dynamics that we've had are you know have been fairly different from others i would say uh, around me that were you know caucasian background born here um and so it's i mean i i will say like the 
the, the immigrant story is uh, interesting because it, it selects for a certain kind of hard work and perseverance. Like the person who comes from India to Canada or the U.S. or the U.K. or, or Australia or whatever and makes a living and starts from scratch more or less um, or not, but has to come to a new environment and raise their kids in, in a novel setting, I think that selects for a certain kind of hard work and openness to experience and um, just just challenging oneself that, you know, I think does inform the way your your kids live and the kind of perspective that they have. Like, they're going to be much more, I think, grateful and um, have a better understanding of what sacrifice really is, right? It's like, because... You know, when when we came here, like 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 mom and dad working all those jobs and you know working super hard in a new environment away from their their family. Like my mom, you know, didn't see her father for for I mean decades, and he recently passed away. I, I never met him, but you know, for her, it's been quite um, saddening recently. But it's like that that level of sacrifice. Like she didn't see her dad for how many decades, and was solely focused on giving us a good life it's like wow like that the kind of moral uh courage and resilience to get to a place like that is yeah. just you know endlessly inspiring i would say so do you think that you have greater respect or greater understanding of the human endeavor in comparison to people who, who grew up here and their parents are just doing their normal nine to five job never like you got to see your parents go through things and see their character come out in a different way do you think that that yeah. shaped your understanding as well yeah, well, I mean, obviously, that's not exclusive to just being an immigrant. I mean, yeah. anyone from any kind of disadvantaged background, like, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, my circles in elementary and middle school were, I would say most of my friends were fairly well off. And on average, I was, you know, our family was um, not doing as well as the families of my friends, I would say. So there was a bit of a difference there, although that, that was not um, always the case. Um, but... I suppose I have learned, you know, the hard work ethic um, in a way that's been quite useful for me, like for, for however that gets molded or sculpted. I mean, there's there's good sides to this. There's bad sides to this. I mean, there's obviously South Asian culture, which is all about getting good grades, getting your your straight A's on your, your especially your math and your science and doing well in school. And if you get a B plus and your dad's mad at you, like there's I mean, that's not the healthiest thing, but it's like. Um, growing up with that kind of um, uh, upbringing did did kind of um, select for a certain kind of perfectionism on my part. Um, perfectionism, uh, diligence, working really hard, trying to be the best I can be, um, uh, reading lots, uh, using you know big vocabulary words of something my dad always uh, was encouraging of. Um, so that no doubt, um, played a big role in kind of where I am today is having those parents that really cared about how I did in school and really pushed me to be the best I could be. Um, whereas, you know, uh, uh, you know, many of my other peers, not all of them, but s some of them didn't have that same encouragement. So had less of that 
that striving for greatness that I had. Yeah. So that's definitely, I would say, played some role in, in the way um, things have progressed for me over the past couple of years. When did you become passionate about being an intellectual, thinking complex issues through and saying that that's yeah. something that you're interested in? Some people, they like building houses and that's fine with them. When did you become passionate yeah. about thinking complex issues through and being able to talk about them? Yeah, it was probably grade 10 um, when I had suffered this minor knee injury, which ended up being quite chronic, which prevented me from pursuing my biggest passion at the time, which was playing soccer and secondly, playing basketball. Like that, that's all I cared about it was you get good grades in school. But after that, soccer and basketball, soccer and basketball, that's it, right? That was just what I lived on. That was kind of my my religion to be the best soccer player I could be and eventually become professional. Yeah, um, I wanted to become a, a pro soccer player and play in Europe um, at some big club. Um, but in grade 10, when suddenly I had all this time on me, I just um, one day walked into uh, Rob Bogunovic, who you, yeah. you might know to, to some degree, depending on which which sources you're reading. Um, he's, 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 he's a really good guy and was a great mentor to me. Um, and I just kind of fell into his um, classroom one day. And uh, the issue at the time was uh, was actually some kind of Middle Eastern conflict. I think it was something happening in Syria um, and foreign policy stuff. I, I, and I, for the first time, just entered in his class and he was talking about it and I took interest in it. And what he was saying, and I, I don't remember the specifics, but he was saying like, this is being presented in a certain way, but actually what's really going on is X or Y rather than what the media is telling you. And I was like, really? Like, is that, like, can that really be a thing of, um, our perceptions failing us or our perceptions um, mismatching with what's actually happening on the ground mm -hmm. and what, what role does the media play? What role do politicians play? And so being in this classroom, spending long hours talking about uh, political and historical issues, particularly uh, BLM and race issues, which for whatever reason, I was just always interested in those issues probably because I was a big fan of hip-hop music and listening to, uh, I would say, especially uh, Kendrick Lamar, who I think is probably the, the greatest musician and even just one of the greatest uh, philosophers and literary thinkers of our time. And just, you know, hearing his struggle about living in inner city um, Compton and the, the legacy of certain uh, historical uh, atrocities versus cultural uh, conflicts and law enforcement and criminal justice and like all, all those kind of issues just were interesting to me. And so I got into that with uh, Mr. Boganovic and uh, did this um, long uh, deep dive into uh, BLM at the time. And I read the, the uh, I forget what the book is called now, um, but uh, it's, it's, it's an orange copy book. It's the kind of the manifesto of Black Lives Matter. And I remember reading it and long story, but I, I went through all of it and coming away with a certain impression and then going into each chapter, then critically and fact checking and being skeptical of different claims and realizing that a lot, if not most of the claims just fell apart upon critical scrutiny of certain views on race and, and uh, inequality and disparities and racism. And so that I think was probably the genesis for kind of what's going on in my world right now is like right. recognizing that there's a lot of trendy ideas about complex topics and a lot of the, a lot of times those trendy ideas just don't match with with the reality and it, it, things are actually far more 
complicated than yeah. what what people say on on social media or, or or even you know the New York Times or the FDA or the CDC. Right? There's there's a lot of complexity to these these big topics. Yeah. Anytime you have like a binary, it's probably not either of those. It's somewhere in between. Yeah. I'm curious about how it also shaped you having a positive influence, Rob Ganovich, and then seeing what he went through. Like other people might have different perceptions. What's your perception as somebody who's influenced, yeah. encouraged, and able to be shaped and to move in the right direction? Because so often we can look at somebody we disagree with their view and then decide that's who they are. But whether you agree with him or not, there's lots of people who might not agree with him. Yeah. He had a positive influence on you, and that can't be removed from yeah. the conversation. Well, yeah, he, he had a positive influence on me. But more than that, he, he's a really good uh, ethically aligned person like he's one of the most ethical loving compassionate people i've ever met okay. rob he's he's very he's very selfless and and he's he's definitely this kind of hyper intellectual like he's for him it's like the the books the politics the issues the you know reading the facts you know he kind of has a bit of that ben shapiro-esque demeanor about him like he really cares about the facts and getting yeah. things right but he, outside of that he he's a very good human being and there's not there's not a lot of people like him out there and it's it, that's just just kind of a fun well not not fun but just an an interesting kind of example that i have uh personally just seeing the just absolute defenestration of him in you know chillwag progress and the editor at the time paul henderson and the way certain perceptions about him were created about who he was as this like alt-right crazy guy um like like all, all, all these things i mean he was most people don't we would never even imagine this but he was running um i forget the exact name of it but he was running multiple clubs at css that were uh, uh, dedicated to invite students who were bullied for their sexual or, uh, sexual orientation, their uh, skin color, etc. Like he was doing these clubs to help uplift people who've gone through hard times and discrimination. Yet he was, you know, seen as the enemy of, of all, you know, all all things all things good in this world. So it's it's an interesting example, and I I, I can't really talk much about what's what's happening uh, currently um, with him. But uh, it's it, it's it, it's safe to say that we've. We were in some pretty insane times with how uh, administrations and regulatory bodies and the education system just just attacks and cancels and just ruins the lives of people that just want to show both sides of a perspective or show the complexity of a topic. Um, and they, they just want to create safe spaces and not allow any teacher educator to challenge their students or to make them even slightly uncomfortable but i anyway i, I won't go into specifics but but rob, rob is a great guy and uh he's been he's been very good to me i'm glad to hear that you've described yourself as having a perennial perspective yeah. i looked it up i dove into it i agree with you i'd be interested if you could describe what that perspective is and when you developed that yeah uh well yeah wow that's a that's a four-hour podcast right there yeah. <laughs> the, the perennial conversation um, you know, I, to, to speak personally of how I became interested. So for people who don't know, perennial perspective, um, Aldous Huxley, the famous philosopher, novelist, uh, as well as the, the psychedelic enthusiast, he, um, popularized, uh, this concept in his book, uh, the perennial philosophy, which is, which is very, very dense. And I, um, I feel like I've only scratched the surface of that book, but the idea that, um, all, 
or I would say more accurately, many world religions and myth systems point to something universal that transcends any kind of individual um, sectarian ideas, that, that, that there's some kind of spiritual foundation at the heart of many great uh, religions and myths and, and allegories. And, you know, I, I've, I've gone back and forth in some ways and, you know, went fairly deep into this topic. And this is what I do outside of journalism, which most people don't know. So at UFE, I've been studying almost entirely um, religion and philosophy over the past uh, couple of years, um, primarily Eastern religions at the start. But I kind of took a, a big detour and became very interested in uh, Eastern Christianity last year. So the, the Orthodox tradition and kind of comparing it to the traditions that we see here and kind of seeing the differences and spending a good amount of time in uh, studying Hinduism and Buddhism. Although, I mean, it's, it's been a couple of years, but I've just barely, just barely scratched the surface. It's yeah. like, th these things are so complex and deep. It's like you, you, you feel like you've, you've read a few things or you've done a few meditations or whatever, but it's like, it's, th there's just uh, a, a wellspring of depth in a lot of these traditions that, um, most people just don't understand. And so, um, to answer your question in a, in a shorter way, I mean, it's having grown up in a background of, of Sikhism and Hinduism to, to varying degrees, but also going to uh, summer Bible camp um, every year because a lot of our friends, a lot of our neighbors were, were Christian. And so I always went to uh, summer Bible camp or what they called uh, vacation Bible school mm -hmm. at uh, Roseville Traditional, as well as other churches in town. Um, I kind of got exposed to these different um, ideas, um, although never in a very um, deep or kind of hard-hitting way. Like I never really identified as Sikh or Hindu or Christian or anything else. I, I never, I mean, I, I remember praying at, at various points when I was a kid, but I never had a, a str super strong faith. And then I remember in grade nine or grade 10, I, I remember just asking my mom, like, um, like I, I just, I feel like I need something spiritual in my life. And my mom, I mean, I guess this speaks to kind of my parents' journey because they, they also weren't really dogmatically religious because they, you know, I, when I was a kid, I, I was wearing a turban. And so we were kind of brought up uh, Sikh um, in, in a kind of a strict way for for maybe a couple of years or a few years. But then I guess my parents had their own evolution and they became more interested in the Hindu or the Vedic side of things and more interested in yoga and breath work and meditation, um, doing a lot of meditation courses. And um, I just always had this itch and... Again, I, I could spend hours. We could spend hours talking about this, but I um, just deeply explored um, Buddhism, Christianity, and Hinduism over the past few years, and came across some really good mentors like Ron Dart at UFE, who just retired last year. He's, he's considered probably like the, the most uh, just decorated, just uh, prolific um, professors in liberal arts and religious side of things at UFE. And uh, it's, it's sad that he he retired, but he was just such a great guy who himself was Christian, but had a deep understanding of other traditions. And so under him, I studied Buddhism and Hinduism and just time after time had certain perceptions broken, just learned new things I didn't know before. And um, 
came to a more or less perennial view, not in the sense of all religions are the same and necessarily always point to the same thing because there are some notable differences between Islam and Christianity. And there's, I mean, there's the Middle Eastern conflict right now that everyone's talking about, right? Uh, Israel and Palestine, but um, th- there are vast doctrinal differences and and those differences matter because that's what informs the, uh, the, the differences and, you know, w- which cultures have... W- Differing perceptions on, you know, gay rights or women's rights or um, immigration or apostasy or um, people leaving and entering the, uh, the faith and even uh, evangelism and all that kind of stuff. But I think there is a common spiritual core um, to these different religious faiths that can be described as perennialism in that there is... I mean, apart from all the differences, which are very important and create for very different outcomes um, at times, particularly, I was going to say, with uh, with violence and with different cultures and their perspectives about uh, about honor culture and, you know, who should be executed or stoned or versus given due process and that kind of thing. I, I still think there is a, a common core of just things like surrendering to to a higher power, surrendering to some bigger force than ourselves um, uh, coming together in community and recognizing the importance of connecting with one another, um, and the, the power of mystical experience, which un- unfortunately our culture um, just completely misses, and that kind of I would say explains the the psychedelic renaissance is that um, there there's a need to have um, ineffable ego shattering experiences and different religions have, have have always had that whether it's the the sufi traditions within islam or uh, advaita vedanta within hinduism or different sects of buddhism or orthodox christianity there's, there's absolutely a need for mystical experience that kind of breaks us out of our ordinary egotistical realities and and so i, I think a lot of those things point to uh, something bigger, but I'm, I'm still in my studies kind of working out the, the kinks of that and kind of how the differences really pan out and, and where we can find genuine points of, of concord and, uh, but also different, also key points of, uh, divergence, which I don't think should be, um, ignored or, um, not talked about due to just political correctness or, or views of, um, just uh, this kind of myopic view that all religions can kind of get along and all ideas are equally good, all religions are equally good and all, you know, yeah. point to the same thing when in, in reality, like I said, there's, there's a lot of key differences that also uh, need to be talked about. There's a beauty to it, in my opinion, because one of my favorites is the flood story because mm. it, it's consistent throughout. Indigenous people have a flood story. Um, Christian religions have a flood story. Almost every religion has a form of flood story. And we know that a flood actually took place. And so there's this fantastic kind of meeting of reality, the story, and what took place. And it's hard to draw the line on how true a religion is. If somebody's acting something out, how beneficial that is. Like Sumas Mountain, that's where all the indigenous people went 10,000 years ago to avoid the floods. And I find that so fascinating because we can't draw this line and say this is how true it's like indigenous religions or belief systems are 60 percent true and christians are 70 percent like we don't know when you act these behaviors out in a proper way how true they can be and how much you can get and i personally and i'm sure uh, you agree that 
like the psychology of a lot of these belief systems is what's the most fascinating. What you can pull from it without harming other people, that you can learn from these belief systems, from the stories and the narratives that we can get from it can add value to your life, regardless of whether or not you believe it literally happened or didn't happen. But I also yeah. think that's an interesting area as well. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I I take at least a similar line to Jordan Peterson on some things religious in terms of many religious stories mimicking something deeply wired and uh, just woven into our DNA. Like, yeah. like there's certain stories that speak to us because it speaks to something innate within us, right? About overcoming adversity in the, the whole hero's journey of, yeah. you know, um, going through various obstacles and finding light within those obstacles and sacrificing various things and, you know, o overcoming our traumas and battling our anxieties and our worst fears and our you know, conquering our demons. Like the, there's, there's something about those stories, whether they're, they're Christian or Hindu or Buddhist that we all, uh, gravitate towards. And, and I don't think we should just flatten them in the same category because they, there are many key, uh, differences. But um, to me, at least from my perspective at this moment in 2023, it's to me, there's something universal about those stories that doesn't make any single one of them the obvious dominant one or, the, you know, the path to follow, which, which yeah. is the, the kind of conventional religious view that many people have is like, well, Jesus is the way or Buddha is the way or are, you know, Muhammad is the way, um, although, I mean, Islam actually, you know, includes Jesus and other prophets um, like Moses in their religion, interestingly enough, but, you know, Muslims will say like their religion is, is the true religion and there's different versions of that. But I, at, at this point in my life, and, and this might t totally change, so I don't know, but at this point, I'm not willing to dogmatically commit to one religion or the other. I, I'm willing to, and, I, and I, I don't think this is actually a bad thing, even though some people think it is, but I, I think I, I do fully and uh, happily and freely um, pick and choose what I think are the best ideas, because I think that is really the only way to have a 21st century conversation about human ethics and spirituality and myth systems, not a not not a Stone Age one, right? I I, I don't think that one religion has all the answers and has everything in it that you need. I think you can pull from the, the, the yoga systems within Hinduism and the certain mystical elements of Islam and the, the story of Jesus. Like I, I think you can, you, you can find and you can bring the best elements of different religions and learn from them rather than just, uh, just picking one. But, but at, at this point, who knows, I might, I might change my views on that. So. We'll I, I think that's a perfectly valid way to approach it is that you can't have a final analysis, A, at our age, and then B, yeah. throughout life, your understandings are going to change. In July 11th, 2020, you wrote The Fallacy of White Privilege and How It's Corroding Our Society. How did that article come about? What was it like working through yeah. some of these issues? It came about, obviously, in the aftermath of the George Floyd incident, and um it's funny. It's, it's 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 a good question on a personal level because I just I, I almost like really want to. I, I really am curious about what I was thinking at that time and what I would have, in retrospect, what I would say to that you know anxious, lost, obsessive, like hyper ambitious, but just completely unknown, anonymous person at that point. You know, which which wrote that thing. I mean, it. I was. Um. Like I said, I had previously followed and was very interested in the BLM topic 
um, and racial differences uh, or uh, racial disparities um, in criminal justice and crime, uh, policing, economic disparities, etc., and identity politics. And um, when George Floyd happened and there was this kind of cultural consensus that uh, white people are privileged in our society and minorities are d- disadvantaged um, and that, uh, well, there's various flavors of this, but like, you know, at, at some points, I mean, you got to just extreme heights of like white people, like bowing down in this kind of not, not even semi-religious, but just religious fashion and just kind of bowing and, you know, washing the feet of, of black protesters and apologizing and this, what I think are complete stone age ideals, like apologizing for something that their ancestors did that they're not responsible for. And, you know, it's like the, the, the complete absurdity of just like, and none of, none of the, none of this complexity, I think was actually acknowledged of like, you know, like a, uh, a low income, um, uh, white male born to a single mom, you know, whose father was a drug addict, you know, apologizing or uh, washing the feet of or kind of expressing this, this this deferential attitude towards a wealthy Ivy League black student at Harvard. It's like, like, like what, are, what, what are we doing? Like, it doesn't make any sense for me to kind of divide things in that kind of identitarian way um, because that there are some disparities on average doesn't mean that we should be coloring the way our individual interactions play out. Like, I, I feel like we should have a fully colorblind attitude in our day-to-day interactions and not just assume that because someone's white that their life has been great or that their life has just objectively been better than this black person or this Muslim person. It's like it, 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 the complexity of life just plays out across races and genders and backgrounds. And to me, that's something that was being completely missed. And, and perversely, it, it was... Um, it was actually preventing us from having an honest conversation about real fucking issues like what to do about inner city Baltimore and south side of Chicago where there's rampant levels of violence and that primarily affects um, low-income black residents who, and this is part of my coverage after the point, um, after that piece, um, interviewing people in Minneapolis, um, all of them happen to be black, about how in the aftermath of George Floyd, police retreated and in some cases were defunded or just their morale was low because of this anti-police sentiment and their communities saw record-breaking um, uh, levels of violence ushering in, you know, the, 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 the grim um, toll of violence in the, in the 1990s, you know, places like Chicago and uh, Minneapolis um, saw just, just horrendous levels of, of violence. And that was not being, um, talked about enough in some cases was just not being talked about at all but instead we're talking about uh white privilege and about you know law firms and banks wanting to impose uh or implement racial quotas and want to upgrade their diversity and because company x has eight percent black people and not 13 percent which is the american population that means that that company that that chemistry lab is racist because they don't have enough black. It's like we're completely missing the point. We're just getting distracted by these uh, issues informed by this corrosive identity politics. And we're not actually talking about 
real inequality in these communities and what to do about it. So that piece was just a, uh, a at least in part, a repudiation of that kind of thinking and a a um, a, uh, a um, uh, advocacy for looking at these issues in a in a colorblind way, including when race is a variable and acknowledging when racism does actually exist, which in that piece, as I, as I outline, um, that's something that I had experienced as a kid. I had experienced various uh, forms of racism, mostly, almost entirely all in elementary school, a little bit in grade eight, grade nine. A- after that, it was never um, a thing. But having experienced that, if suddenly you want to call any inequality racism, it's like that does harm and actually insults people who have actually experienced racism when you say that any inequality or any disfavorable outcome involving any minority person yeah. means that it's the racism or transphobia or homophobia or sexism is always the cause, which, which I think is just completely wrong. One of the other pieces that you mentioned in the piece that I think is useful to kind of get your perspective on now is that there are communities of Caucasian people who come from wealth, who have their grandparents owned slaves, and they are wealthy as a consequence of that. How do you think about that issue? Because that was one of the things you started that piece off with is just acknowledging there are some people who come from this very privileged position in life. You didn't land and end there. You went through other positions. But I'm just curious, how do we think about that issue? How do we look at those people who come from that wealth? Because that's, I think, the argument that people are making when they talk about white privilege. Yeah, well... The the problem is that you can't really draw any racial lines on that because, I mean, if, if you look at who the highest income groups are in the U.S., the U.K., and Canada, uh, I mean, if, if you look at the U.S. in particular, it's it happens to be, you know, my ethnicity. Indian Americans are by far the highest earners. Sure. And then you have like, uh, you know, Lebanese Americans, Taiwanese Americans. Um, but how do we uh, deal with those specific people who are from that that lineage? Because those are the people uh, that people use as scapegoats of like, that's evidence of white privilege. How do we resolve that issue in our mind that some people did in fact come from a position where they owned other people and used that to gain their wealth and get a, a benefit over other society right. members? Yeah, no, that, yeah, that, that's a good, that, that's a good question. And it's, um, I mean, there's there's different ways of of looking at that problem of of inequality and historical wrongdoing, and it's the the problem you I would say run into um, quite frequently when you're looking at which injustices were committed in the past and who's at fault for what. It's well, well, well I mean, again, just, just to put our foot into the door. Not all white people owned slaves, Correct. right? And um, I mean, it's like there's this weird sort of Eurocentric perspective that we have here in the West that yeah. in history, only white people were the privileged ones and that there was nothing else going on. And this, this is... To be clear, indigenous people owned slaves prior to colonization. We owned people of our own descent yeah. before Caucasian people or anybody else showed up. So I agree yeah. with you, but I still don't know what to do with people who come from that position. And if their parents came from that and they used that wealth, how do we look at it? Like, there seems yeah. like a moral issue with that person. Yeah, well, well it was, okay, so to, to finish what I was saying earlier, there's this weird Eurocentric perspective where we don't want to acknowledge or talk about... Um, the, the the directions in which you know this privilege and injustice 
swings in. I mean, there's if you look at the the Muslim slave trade, I mean, it, it was it was uh, some estimates show that they they the Muslim slave trade um, in North Africa, where they they took um, slaves and you know treated them in the, the most barbaric, uh, uh, just horrible conditions. Um, that when you look at and there's many of other examples, but when you look back in history, you you won't find anything tidy where there's the good guys and the bad guys. I mean, e even with the transatlantic slave trade, one of the things that I learned with um, Rob Gunnick was um, that you had rich African kings selling their black slaves to uh, the Americas to the European colonizers in exchange for uh, things like weapons or other you know mass goods that they needed, and. When we look at the American context, which is something you just mentioned right now, is and this is part of my problem with the, the land acknowledgments issue is that um, when we want to say, well, this land belonged to this specific tribe, um, it's like, well, was this land always belonging to this tribe, or was there actually three different tribes that were vying for this land and they were warring with each other barbarically, and one of the tribes ended up winning out and they had this specific land for yeah. this amount of time? It's like. When you go back far enough, you have all these tribes warring against each other, and you know this idea of this like Aboriginal unity across all areas, and then the white colonizer comes, and it's white people versus brown people. It's like that's a childish kindergarten worldview of what actually you know uh, really happened, and none of that absolutely discounts all the, the the injustice and the legacy of of I mean arguably genocide in the um, residential schools. You know yeah. you know what happened, but when it comes to what to do um, um, with that problem today, it's like, again, w w we should be focused on where the inequalities exist today and not punish people or judge them based on their ancestors. Because oftentimes, some of the most successful groups, and again, this, this goes to my earlier point, is like, you know, you look at, you know, Jews in America, right? J Jewish people, Thomas Sowell talks about this in his book, The Great... Um, African-American economist, it's like you look at like Hollywood, you look at Harvard, you look at different institutions of power and and and, and Jewish people have done incredibly well. They've overcome great uh, disadvantage and anti-Semitism and um, ethnic uh, oppression, um, Nazism, all this stuff. And, you know, th this idea that because certain groups have come from advantage and others haven't, that that you know, we should do something now about what's happening in the past. It's it, it, it's it's not it's not a clear line because you're going to find, you know, rich, affluent um, uh, members of the South Asian community that came from tremendous amount of wealth, you know, here in the United States and Canada. And you're going to find poor people of low income backgrounds with drug addiction and, and, and single motherhood and all these problems um, that happen to be white. And so it's like when we're looking at the legacy of um, slavery and oppression, it's like, it, it really spans across, um, different races. It's, it spans across different backgrounds. I mean, if you go back to, you know, what was happening in certain parts of India and this intersects with certain, um, areas of my family, although at some point I'd love to do a deeper dive. It's like the conflict between, you know, Hindus and Muslims. And, uh, I definitely want to do a deeper dive in the history before speaking authoritative authoritatively on this but the level of oppression arguably from uh muslims against the hindus and the sikhs was was immense and um in some cases it was the other way around potentially but it's like you're going far back and it's hard to 
place clear lines in a way that would make social justice ideas today easy to understand. And, and th that's why I think we should be having a conversation about who's disadvantaged right now and what are the reasons for that? What, is it crime? Is it inequality? Is it lack of opportunity? Is it just, you know, inner city schools not being funded well enough? Like, like let's talk about that because if we, if we focus on... Can you, can you see how that benefits the perpetrators though? Like if we can agree that certain people were terrible throughout history, yeah. the argument that we should only focus on the now really benefits the people who did wrong previously because they're like, don't look back there because we're today. And so let's just look to the future. That benefits, if you were to commit a crime yesterday and say, well, we're just going to wipe this slate clean. Eric Weinstein with uh, uh, yeah. on Modern Wisdom talked about this idea of like, whoever says, let's clear the slate usually has a reason for it. And it's not always a good reason. Like the logic of like, let's not look back to the past. There's a lot to learn from that. And there are individuals who were involved in that. And so I'm thinking of like a literal person comes to you and says, I committed, like my family did this and they stole a bunch of land and they, they abused people and they had slaves and they didn't care and they were racist and they were hateful. That yeah. we just look at that person and go, no, you're, you're good. We're only going to look at the future now. That seems like that would benefit that person continuing to maintain the status quo and ignore past atrocities. Like we know John well, A. McDonald was a racist right. and hateful person. And so I'm trying to think of like what we would do with that person. Yeah. Well, but, but, th but that's the only way forward. Um, and that, and you know, there, there's no perfect solution. There's no way of just whitewashing, you know, everything or s starting fresh from 2023. But, but that, that, that's just the grim reality of things. I mean, my country, you know, where I'm born from India suffered through brutal imperialism and British colonialism and India suffered as a result from that, the way um, the British colonizers came in and just absolutely destroyed parts of India. I mean, it, India was just much more uh, rich and affluent and just, just thriving economically before the colonizers came in. And I mean, the, the rest is history. But it's like, wh what, what do we do with that problem right now? It's like it, it, it cuts in so many different directions. It's like you go back far enough in your family. You're of Aboriginal uh, background, yeah, right? Yeah. Is, are you are you fully Aboriginal or? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's like, you know, it's it's I'm not I you, you can tell me better than, than than I can, obviously. But it's like th theoretically, there are other Aboriginal tribes that did wrong to your tribe. Right. I mean, have you looked at that yes, before? Yeah. Yeah. So the it's Kwa -Kwa 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 where yeah, they came okay. to Stolo territory and uh, put heads on pikes. Yeah, so some of your ancestors were involved in, yeah, victims were, of that. Stolo people have been considered very uh, peaceful people yeah, for okay. thousands of years, but other communities, as you to your point, yeah. were absolutely abusive and yeah. use their their power and influence yeah. for negative things. Right. Yeah, and that 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 that's horrifying. Yeah, I mean, like like little like your little ancestors were put on like sticks their heads and on pikes, like, yeah, yeah, wow, that's yeah, that's insane. So again, so it's like you, you, so like, should those people, like, how do we treat those people, like descendants of those tribes and descendants of, um, you know, full, um, you know, people of, of full, um, British European background who, you know, once upon a time oppressed my ancestors in India. It's like, how do I have a conversation with like, is it worth going back far enough and saying, Oh, your ancestors actually came into fucking Southern India and did this thing. And, you know, my ancestors suffered as a result of that. Or do we have a conversation of right now? Because I, I personally think that that's just, um, a dead end, you know, going that far back, not, it's not that we shouldn't talk about those things or shouldn't care about them, but when it comes to solutions yep. and it comes to actually treating each other on an individual level, it, it really matters what's going on now 
all the while having sympathy and empathy for all you know, the complex you know, history of, of different people. But if we're looking at, I, mean, I go back to this point again, if, if we're looking at what to do about South Side of Chicago or um, the reserves right now, you know, in, in different parts of Canada, just talking about white supremacy, you know, in your liberal arts college degree is not the solution. It's like, what, what, what kind of treaties can we broker? What kind of policies can we implement now that are informed by that historical perspective, but don't, but, you know, d- don't punish people of, you know, descendants of a certain background and don't preferentially privilege everyone of a certain yeah. background on, on the other side. This is why I have a problem with affirmative action on principle. And, and again, this like idea of like, we as a company, we want to hire more minority people to uplift them. And so we're going to have, you know, 30% of our employees are going to be, you know, black and brown and, you know, Chinese, and we're going to have 50% women. It's like, no, the best talent should should come to the top, and the best people should be selected. And if you're and if you're seeing differences in, you know, drug abuse, mental health issues, you know, economic disparities, in you know, in a place like Chicago, the the solution isn't to focus on slavery and to implement reparations, which I don't think actually would would do much help. By the way, is this is one of the things. Also, Thomas Sowell talks about is like fixing complex historical problems is not as easy as just giving money away, Agreed. right? So, like, you know, uh, residential areas, Aboriginal uh, uh, reserves. It's like if you just gave them, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and just said, "Okay, we apologize for everything we did." Here's a 200k check for Agreed. every individual community. Is that going to fix problems? I can give you a literal example. We were yeah. my community was so. If you know the Seabird area. That used yeah. to be seven communities' particular um, gathering point, and so we were all given fifteen thousand um, dollars as mm. payment for that instead of investing in social programs. Here's the the problem, though: mm. you either give people fifteen thousand dollars to put in their pocket, or you put in a band council that may misspend the money and waste it away, so the person doesn't actually get any benefit. So it's not clear to me unless you have good governance, that that money would be better allocated to the band doing something with it because not in all circumstances is the band the right people to manage that money. Sometimes it is the individual. And so to your Mm -hmm. point, almost everybody from our community ended up spending the money and they have nothing to show for it. And they likely don't even know that it was for Seabird Island and that they were given this money for a specific reason of a specific wrong that took place. But getting communities out of the circumstance, to your point, is incredibly complex. And the space does need to be held that people were put behind the eight ball. They have no idea that they were put behind the eight ball and they have no idea what getting out would look like if they were to. And so we're trapped in the circumstance circumstance. And it feels like yeah. right now we're at the point of like just acknowledging where people are. And to your point, working as a native court worker, working with people in the criminal justice system who are indigenous, often I hear, where's my native lawyer? Where's my indigenous this? Where's my right. indigenous judge? Where's my like, and it's like, right, you hit somebody, you beat the crap out of somebody, like you committed a crime. You don't get right. the, the plentiful nature of our system just because you're indigenous. You need to take responsibility for your actions and actually take the steps to move out of their circumstance. The question then becomes, how do we make sure we fund these resources to get people out of those circumstances, which is to your point, like West Side of Chicago, how do we get people out of that? And it seems like just focusing on prong one, which is truth, like this happened to your ancestors and this is maybe why you're behind the eight ball doesn't actually result in any improvement, but there does seem to be some space needed for that so people have that mercy that they know that it's not because yeah. they're a loser and a failure and not enough. And 
being an indigenous person, like most people know that indigenous people are on the side of the road, on drugs, homeless. So going into an interview, I'm not going to look the same when they think of an indigenous person Mm. as a Caucasian person who they might not be able to think of that, that person on the street struggling with homelessness. They might not think of the reserves. They might think that I'm coming from this edgier place. And so I don't agree with this uh, affirmative action, but I don't know what solutions exist to encourage people to think outside the box because I don't represent every indigenous person, but the average person, if you were to see an indigenous person apply, you might have those things pop up in your mind which is what I also hesitate about us focusing too much on the atrocities. Then all you know me for is crime rates, statistics on education levels, all those things, which is not who I am and not who many of my community members are. But you get these kind of things and that can disadvantage people further. And I don't know how to square this, but I do see the attempt of affirmative action like we had it at my law school. And it gave some people who would have never gone to law school the opportunity to be there in this space and learn some things that they would have never had access to. One of my favorite classes was taxation of corporations. Yeah. You wouldn't have gotten that opportunity had you not had affirmative action to allow somebody from a reserve to take that course and learn about those topics. Right. Well, well, was that uh, the question then becomes, were those people from the reserve not going to make it to that university anyways? Likely not. Like Their grades were too low? Yes. I imagine probably like 3.5 when you need a 4.2. Right. Uh, yeah. And so that doesn't mean the person's an idiot, but that does mean that right. if they were to apply through the normal stream, they probably wouldn't get in. Right. But they would still get into some school. Like if if, if you're doing well, you can get into a decent college. Right. It's it's not like there's regular no college. college, but not law school. Right. Like law school, you'd have a four year degree, and you'd need a four point two GPA to get in. Yeah. And so some people are just normal people are not going to get that, and so that opens the door of a different pathway in for them to bring that knowledge back to their community to get out of poverty. Right. Yeah. But but the, the thing is that also brings various problems with it too. I mean, is 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 a rich? I mean, I is a and this is something Coleman Hughes talks about. He's a yeah. prominent young black intellectual. It's like giving affirmative action to someone like him. So he happened to go to Columbia, uh, um, wealthy um, environment. You know, parents were, um, uh, you know, encouraging him to you know, do well in school. And he was, uh, I, I think he describes him, he described his upbringing as middle class. So there was, there was no poverty and he didn't live, you know, south side of Chicago or Baltimore or any kind of inner city area. I think it was in Virginia he grew up in. It's like for him, affirmative action doesn't make sense. But because he's black, he got preferentially, you know, or I don't know if he did, but yeah. someone like him would be preferentially selected. But why? Like, but like in law school, yeah. they have you write a letter saying why you should be chosen for the program. Like okay. it's, it's not like just you check the black box and you get in. You have to tell why your story is unique and, and in such a way that you would deserve to have a seat in the law school. Right. But, but, but then, then that's just that's just a colorblind solution. Then eventually it's like anyone who's come from I mean, if, if the criteria is you come from hardship. Yeah. Then, you know, it, regardless of skin color, someone who's come from drug addiction and crime and their father beat the shit out of them and, you know, you know yeah. wh- whatever, or their mother passed away, it's like, then that's the person we should be selecting for. It doesn't, skin color is not the variable then, it's disadvantage. But we right? can point to specific things for like indigenous communities, like Indian residential schools, the 60 scoop, and other policies that would have impacted indigenous people specifically that would give you rise to think that they their specific circumstance was due to government Assimilation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there. I think there are, by the way, differences between you know the conversation in the United States with Black Americans and the Indigenous conversation. Um, I, I think there's some big differences in just recent history and just how things have panned out. Um, and I'm, I'm not, 
I mean, I, I'm generally against um, these kind of affirmative action um, policies because I think if universities selected for, you know, they want, um, you know, some students of disadvantaged backgrounds who experienced hardship um, historically in their in their family, you're going to automatically include people from indigenous backgrounds because a lot of them are disadvantaged yeah. when they're yeah. applying. But you're also going to include disadvantaged Chinese students and Agreed. white students and black students and Indian students who also came from disadvantaged backgrounds. So you're, uh, you're you're capturing a wider net and not discriminating against the poor white guy whose dad was addicted to drugs and mom beat the shit out of him and you know his little brother passed away from some disease. Yeah. It's like you're actually including that guy and you're not preferentially boosting um, a you know a, a middle class well off you know parents love them have all their basic needs covered indigenous kid, child who yeah. um, you know had a G GPA of whatever three point nine had all the luxuries he needed and yeah. but he simply got selected because of his skin color agreed but that that's you know to your point about if you're selecting for people of disadvantage. Um, as you know, not not that anyone who's disadvantaged should go to Harvard, you know, should get yeah. a ticket to Stanford, but yeah. that there is some value in having people of different backgrounds. I, I think that's a race neutral thing, not Agreed. a race specific one at all. Yeah, working as a native court worker, I often comment that there should be somebody in the court system assisting everybody through that process, signing them up for counseling, getting them access to resources, making the process clear, helping them apply for legal aid, getting them supported so they can get out of the criminal justice system. This shouldn't just be for indigenous people because often, to your point, like there's lots of Caucasian people and people from all different backgrounds who are, have the exact same kind of journey through atrocity and challenge and adversity that just need a leg up. And it should be race neutral. And, yeah. But I, th I think there's this balance that has to be struck because the indigenous circumstance in Canada is so unique. Yeah. Because the reserve system is like, by my standard, designed to impoverish people because you don't own your land. Yeah. So you can't sell your land for profit where you would be able to move into a more affluent community. Yeah. I, I think being race neutral means that you're targeting the greatest places of disadvantage and of discrimination. So if there are specific places which there are, and again, th this is kind of the difference between the American, I mean, not always, but th there are some differences between the American context and the Canadian one. Yeah. But if you, you talk about specific cases of injustice and discriminatory government policy in the past 50 years in this particular reserve at this time or this residential school at this point in history, we can target that disadvantaged because that was a human evil and that was barbaric and racist and completely wrong and and just violates all our core norms and and when we should if, if if there's a way to correct that we should correct that yeah. but that's but again that's not a race that has nothing to do with being of a certain skin color that's yeah. this is disadvantage and if those if those indigenous reserves instead were people from Ireland, we would focus on that as well. It, it doesn't matter if they're, you know, what shade of skin color they are, but we want to focus on past injustice. And if there's a specific instance of that that we can correct, then we should absolutely correct it. But right now what you have is this broad overcorrection where you end up, you know, privileging and preferentially uh, selecting many people of great privilege and luxury and who don't need a leg up a leg up, and and you create this other problem too, which Heather McDonald, um, a great writer, author, 
has talked about this kind of diversity mismatch where you end up, you know, preferentially selecting someone who, you know, wasn't qualified for Harvard, but a really good school, but you send them to Harvard and they're really struggling because yeah. they weren't prepared for Harvard, but yeah. because they were black and of a certain background, you put them in Harvard and next thing you know it, they're struggling as a result. So you've actually not helped them by you're doing this virtuous thing, but they actually would have had a better time being at the top of their class in maybe a lower school that isn't Harvard because, you know, let's face it, not, not everyone here is Harvard material. So yeah. there, there's that problem as well that I think these race-specific policies yeah. um, create oftentimes more problems and end up, you know, punishing Asians in some cases too, right? Yeah. In, 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 in the U.S., you've had these cases where you know, Asian students um, have been protesting and saying that we're, you know, being uh, de-boosted or we're not being or we're, we're being discriminated against because we're, you know, getting into Harvard at such high rates yeah. and Harvard wants more black and Hispanic individuals and, um, yeah, so it's again, it's like you, you target merit and you target need and you focus on disadvantage. You're going to have a far cleaner and better time and you're just going to execute um, some of these virtuous ideas better than if you say everyone black, disadvantaged, yeah. white people privileged. Yeah. The, the other example is the pretendians in Canada who like one of our health ministers pretended to be indigenous in order okay. to get that 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 leg up and get that opportunity and i'm trying to forget it was a presidential candidate elizabeth warren oh yes who said she was yeah. indigenous or of like native descent in order to right. move up in her career yeah then there was this case rachel dolezal she was this white uh, professor i think who um well, well she she had some level of of blackness in her dna and she exploited yeah. that yeah. you know her from her ancestral tree and yeah, so you, so you see that, you know, wielding the, the, the privilege card of who, you know, this kind of oppression Olympics, as Gad Sad says, it's like, yeah. who's more oppressed? It's exactly. like, yeah. it's, again, the, the, that game to me is totally toxic and shouldn't be played at all yeah. uh, because a lot of those things aren't good proxies for disadvantage and for suffering, right? Yeah. Just because just you're black and you're... Um, bisexual doesn't mean you, you know you're automatically <laughs> suffering more than if you're white and you're straight, or if you're a, yeah. you know a Muslim woman who's you know whatever who's trans. It's like we should be focusing on people who are really uh, disadvantaged, not just people who fit a certain criteria box yeah. um, that uh, you know is kind of exploited and used to advance certain narratives about uh, race and gender that I think are just totally toxic. Yeah. I got to guest host Tara Henley's show, Lean Out, and one of the topics was oh. DEI. And one of the topics we were exploring was that this also ends up curtailing and focusing on political ideologies. You select for the people who are going to regurgitate so you don't get diversity of ideas. Right. You end up with diversity of skin color, but not diversity of ideas. And that, that ends up being another problem that we start to face. Yeah. And another thing I should just say quickly too is Dr. Glenn Lowry runs a great Substack. He's um, just an incredible economist. I've done his podcast before and he focuses on black issues. And one of the things he says is that we should be focusing on the development of disadvantaged communities, not this sort of top-down, yeah. you know, you know, where, where the we're, you know, uh, HSBC and you know we're a bank and we are. I, th I think they're closing down or Scotia Bank and you know we want to impose. You know, we want 
you know, whatever percentage of, of the population is Aboriginal, do you know what that is? Is it 4.3%? Yeah. Okay. So it's like, we want 4.3% Aboriginal employees. That to me is the wrong way of doing it. Yeah. It's rather, if you have enough qualified Aboriginal employees, they will find them. Assuming these places aren't bastions of racist bigotry, which they're most likely not, <laughs> um, which is an, an, another problem. These accusations get thrown out of yeah. places being sexist or racist, just if they have any disparity wrong, along racial or gender lines. But we should be focusing on um, you know, the, the legacy of residential schools and how that's impacting certain communities right now and what we can do to help those communities and whether it's social workers or counseling or dealing with addiction problems or, you know, funding things better or you know, sending more um, individuals who can, you know, be good mentors in that community and, and, you know, leading youth away from crime and drugs and into education and, you know, leading a good uh, life. Th- that that's That's the way out of, of many of these problems, not we're Harvard and we want X percent black employees, but yeah. rather what can we do in South side of Chicago to uplift students of this community where crime is rampant and drugs are rampant and fatherlessness is also rampant. It's yeah. like, that's much more important than the latter because you'll, or the former, because you might even achieve the former. You might have at your company, you know, 4.3% indigenous employees and, and, you, and you might, you know, implement that everywhere but have you really solved core fundamental uh, issues in some of these problems, uh, some of these communities? And the answer is no, you've achieved some racial quota and that might've helped some people, but to get at the root cause of the problem, um, I I think is much more important. So the other thing that I'm thinking of is this, like, I agree with you, 4.3% anything is like, that's just not a good goal because you're doing it arbitrarily. But I do think there's a problem if we're talking about banks of like, did you put the application process out to at the, the band office at the reserve? Because you might put it up at City Hall, you might put it on City Hall's website, but you didn't put it up at the indigenous community. So they don't even know about the opportunity. So there's a risk there. And then I would also say the challenge with certain communities, I'll use the reserves in Canada as an example, is that your neighbors aren't doctors, lawyers, judges, mm-hmm. bank tellers. So you don't have anything, your children don't have anything to aspire to go, I want to be like my next door neighbor who's a doctor. And so those people getting that opportunity also encourages this idea that, hey, they have a nicer lawn than me. Hey, they like you kind of right. get into that. And yeah. obviously going down just purely a mere t- materialistic path isn't good, but seeing other people succeeding is a really valuable thing. And hiring people on reserve and showing the benefits of a good quality job can encourage people to get off of social assistance and start to take up their mantle and, yeah. and show their impact. And so 4.3%, no, but I think there is value in making sure that there is that representation so that Indigenous people can show that they're capable. Like, it means something to me personally when I come through a McDonald's and right. I see an Indigenous person working there and doing a good job right. because then it's like, okay, like you're showing yeah. the world that you can do a good job at this and we're capable, competent people just like everybody else. And I think there's that balance that still needs to be struck. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, but that balance, in in my view, is not um, to be achieved through government mandates of having X percent. That that's a that's a development problem. That's a uh, you know having policies and having solutions that um, target uh, communities of disadvantage rather than top down. Oh, look how many brown people we have. Well, problem solved. It's like, well, no, not really, man. There's people in the reserves that are really suffering and we should be focusing our our resources there as much as we can. Um, 
although there, there's one other important point is this kind of tragic vision of humanity is like liberals and progressives tend to be um, tend to be more interested in uplifting people out of poverty and they're more they, there's some studies showing more optimistic more interested in, in in real change and transformation and I would say on a personal psychological level that that's kind of where I think of things it's like how can I be the best person I can be how can yeah. I, I you know experience transformation and help others transform? Um, but there is this reality of like you you can impose again because a lot of this conversation we're talking about is what we as a society can do to impose things or to implement solutions to help these communities. But it, there's this other variable that doesn't get talked about as well is what's happening in these communities themselves as well, right? It's like are there you know individual leaders and mentors in that community that are you know, telling their, and this is, this is not race specific at all, but like, are, are they telling their youth to stay away from drugs and, you know, encouraging education and making, you know, science and mathematics sexy and not, you know, you know, yeah. you know, living a criminal lifestyle or selling drugs. It's like, if you, you can put in all the government policy you want and fund all these places, all you want and try to help, but decades of abuse and trauma have to be on some level internally reformed. And there, there's a there's a there's, there's a clear direction for where government can play a role, but government can't fix anything. That's kind of one of the social justice fallacies that um, I've uh, luckily kind of learned about through reading Thomas Sowell is that government can't fix everything. Agreed. Right? There has to be the internal reform, a kind of psychological transformation, a a evaluation of one's values and and what what's important or is family you know certain cultures value family more than others and yeah. asian cultures particularly have stronger family units um the the, the 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 valuing of family in asian cultures is far greater than what we see here in certain western uh, secularized communities and that has differing outcomes across different domains yeah. and so it's there's clear conversation to be had about values and about psychology and about uh, you, know, you can even talk about religion and ethics that also lead to different outcomes. Um, it, it's it's not just a, a conversation about government policy. I think I I tend to agree with that on average circumstances, but I'm on council for my community and I've done that for the past year. And one of the things I've been exposed to is the reality that you have to start there for some of these communities because specifically for my community, we have uh, 89 homes. Yeah. All of them were derelict by my standard. Like I wouldn't be willing to live with them. If you stayed in there for a couple of hours, you'd start to notice that right. you've got a headache because there's so much mold in the house. And so when their parents are alcoholics and their parents' yeah. parents are alcoholics and their neighbors are alcoholics and their neighbors on the other side are alcoholics and everybody in their community gets drunk every every night how would that child ever get out of that circumstance? Like no amount of like grit of like, I want to get out of the circumstance is going to connect you because even if you go over to your neighbor's house or across the street or to your right or to your parents or to your grandparents, nobody's mm -hmm. going to tell you how to fill out a university application. Nobody's going to know how to do something like that, right. how to apply for a job, how to write a resume. So internally, we have to develop our government to a certain point where if they came to the band office, there would be somebody in that building who could start to move them in the right direction. To your point, it has yeah. to be on the individual level. Like they have to yeah. be willing to take those steps for themselves. But right now, if they were to go to anybody in the community, they'd be clueless. And nobody mm. would give them a better direction. And so th at that point... Well, like, well, well not even like any schools or community centers in those areas... 
like the schools on reserve have a similar population. So they're right. going to face similar challenges, people who've not gone beyond. So if you were like, how do I become a doctor? That person's not going to know how to answer right. that. So sorry, sorry. The, the, like there, there's elementary and secondary schools, but you're yeah. saying they're of a lower quality? Like, yes. like, yeah, because they, they don't have teachers that are as informed. Correct. But by the way, are, are those yeah. teachers going to be indigenous, by the way, or are they going to be of different? Like, is it monitored under the you know Chilliwack School District or no? Seabird uh, is independent, so they yeah. don't answer okay. to the the local school. Okay, district. so are their teachers all indigenous? Many of or? them are, and then the okay. influences are like you obviously bring in cultural liaisons who are also indigenous to help teach those okay. courses. So you're getting an even more indigenous lens to that. Interesting. And I wonder, are they... And the attendance rate for Indigenous people at school, even if there are those people, is 43%. So the students aren't even attending the classes to begin with because they're seeing what life is like and they're modeling the behavior they're seeing in their community. Right. So certain communities are turning this around. Stahelis is an excellent example, but they're bringing in outside influences of people who are not from their community to start Mm. to educate and support their their community and their development. And they've it's taken them twenty years to roll out some of those programs to start to deliver different results. But for my community specifically, like attend like in council meetings, our conversations are students aren't attending their school. Yeah. So even if there were those good influences, they don't even know because they don't even know to ask those questions. And when you're 13, like I wasn't a good student when I was 13. Yeah. So, like I wasn't on the right Me track. Yeah. So I can't tell them like, oh, you should be looking for how to be a better person when you're 13 when I was not on that right path. But it seems like once they go so far in, then they're on drugs. Then they don't even have a vision for their life. And some of them didn't even develop that vision of like, I want to be a lawyer one day or I want to be a doctor. They just never even had that glimmer of hope that their life could be anything other than what their neighbors was, which is yeah. alcohol use. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the, well, the question then is what, what kind of solutions can be implemented there? From my perspective, That's... it's like I can apply for funds from Indigenous Services Canada for about $120,000 to get their home fixed. Because like the first step is like mm, you need to right. be able to be in your home and not like we have people with like they're getting kidneys removed because they're 13 years old wow. and they've lived in this house their whole wow. life. And it's just an awful quality. Yeah. Then it's helping their parents get a job. And we need programs that actually work. And to your point, we use statistics. Did this program create a different result? Mm -hmm. Like, did it actually function? And we don't do that. In Indigenous communities, we've had the same program and it runs every year. And we Mm -hmm. have no idea if anybody ever gets a job and we just keep doing it. And so we need programs that actually work and use professors and educators who understand the literature to help come in and make sure that when we do an employment program, that it actually delivers results. Um, My mom took a cooking course and then never used those cooking tools ever again. She was born with fetal alcohol syndrome as a consequence of her mother going to Indian residential school Mm. and facing abuse. And so I am the first out of two generations to start to turn things around and improve things for not only her, but for my community Mm. around me. And I'm the first to get a full four-year education, the first to get a law degree. And some of those were with the support of um, uh, affirmative action programs. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, it's like, Catering to problems like that, it's 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 very. I mean, on some level, it's very complicated because how do you actually enact deep transformation in those communities? And it's like, obviously, there, there's there's some role for the government to play, like I said. Yeah. Um, but then there's also the role of of the individual communities. And I'm, you know, I, I wish I was an expert on social science. Like I, yeah. I could recommend <laughs> solutions, but those, I mean, I, I. I want to be hopeful that there are sociologically, economically tested programs 
that would be effective. I, I don't know if you've looked into that, but I'm 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 hopeful that there might be something like that. Yeah. Um, that there can be further efforts made on a government level, um, to to fix those problems. Um, uh, but 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 that goes along with and and can't be, itself be the corrective for those problems when there is the role of culture and um, just behavior uh, to play in those communities. Like how, if, if we have all the government programs there um, that are designed to be effective, um, how, how do you fix, you know, the, the levels of abuse and alcoholism in those communities? Right. Yeah. And so it's, you know, is it, is it counseling services? Is it um, the, encouragement of different religious communities or ideas or, you know, encouraging certain uh, spiritual programs or, you know, mentorship programs for young youth to have, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, successful men to look up to and to teach them how to, you know, behave and be civilized and how to, you know, conduct themselves in a world that is is difficult and hard and harsh. Um, It's, yeah, it's, unfortunately, these problems are much more, um, complex than the the social justice conversation tends to be like 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 this mm-hmm. level of conversation we're having um like again w- without my you know without having any expertise on which programs work and which and, yeah. I'm, and i'm curious by the way if you if you've done any research into which programs might work or not but it's like th- th- this is much more different than saying that a whole population is privileged and the others is, is disadvantaged and oppressed and that we, you know universities should be uh, and universities and schools should be imposing racial quotas to to help fix that problem. When in reality, it's, it's a it's a deep psychological, spiritual, behavioral problem that has just so many layers of historical atrocity and injustice built into it that it not only isn't addressed on a kind of superficial identity politics level, but often can even make that worse by encouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the mindsets of, of victimhood and of this kind of waving the flag of fixing a problem when in actuality you, you haven't actually done that much. The reason that I find it so interesting is because there's a deep hate I have for like a John A. McDonald because he did it perfectly. If you wanted to destroy mm. a, a society, a community, you would do what he did. He removed our language. So we can't talk in cultural terms. Uh, the elderly people had to hide on, like at St. Mary's in Mission, there's one lady who's the only fluent um, speaker, Elizabeth Phillips, who still speaks the language. She's the last person. Mm. She had to go hide on the back of the reserve in order to speak her language to keep that alive. And she had no idea why she was doing it at the time, but she continues that all the way to this day. And she's the only one left in our area who still speaks the language people are working to try and revive the culture but it's i would say the big difference between indigenous people and like black communities in the u.s is they gathered around certain cultural icons like you might not agree with them but jay-z beyonce like there were people and you go wow maybe i could be that person right who the heck do you look to an indigenous culture where you're like that person is like a hero they're killing it and it's because they removed all of that they did that for a hundred years and so there's nobody left to look up to the people we do think of maybe you think of jody wilson or abel well she's in that governmental system right. that maybe you agree or disagree with. And so you've kind of lost that connection with maybe you want to be her. But who's the singer that you think of when you think indigenous? Who's yeah. who's the rapper? Who's the... Intellectual like, author. Are, I mean, are, are there? Are, are, there, are, there definitely are, but they're not 
Jay-Z or, not, or Jordan Peterson or, or Jordan or Peterson or that influential. Right. So it's yeah, harder yeah. to look and go, Hey, maybe I can go be that guy one day. Maybe I can play music like this person. And even the, the talk in indigenous communities is so often go to the government. And so to your point, like we have to have this, like screw applying yeah. for the next grant. We need to rebuild here and not worry about what other people are doing. We need to rebuild. Right. But we need a certain amount of that money to even get started. And yeah. the value of land, like Shiacton's rebuilding, and they're using that money to invest in counseling programs, which is genius. Squayala here in Chilliwack, they're, they mm. did the Walmart. They're taking that funds. They're reinvesting it into growing their community and offering their own schooling system that's separate from the regular SD33 kind of system. Mm. And so they're doing things that are unique. But it's also because they're in an urban environment. My community can't copy what yeah. they did because we just don't have the people that would come and use the Walmart out in Hope where nobody lives in order to do the same thing. So we have to come up with new strategies right. and sometimes utilize the pipeline. I do not agree with how Indigenous people are framed in the pipeline conversation because most of us are taking that money, giving it some to our community members and some trying yeah. to build community resources yeah. to improve circumstances. But I must move on from this topic. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say one other thing sure. too on that is lastly, is just like all, all of this conversation, I think absolutely needs to be bracketed in just utmost sympathy and compassion yeah. for people in that circumstance and yeah. what and what they went through and which is why i think it's absolutely vital and, and crucial to to study the residential schools and look at the horrors you know um with an open mind with with just ut utmost care and dedication to helping those people on an individual level um you know whether that's you know your neighbor or people you went to school with i mean i there were at least a couple of people, one one in particular um, individual who I went to school with, um, of an indigenous background, who really, really suffered in many different ways. And uh, actually, I haven't, I haven't thought about this in a while, but he, there was an effort made on the part of myself and a couple of other friends to really help him, and it it just didn't work, unfortunately. I mean, he was such a good friend of ours, and he was very diligent. Um, working very hard, very athletic, but just after high school, just kind of collapsed and fell into drug addiction, like really serious drug addiction, mm -hmm. su suicidality, getting involved in the criminal justice system. And it was just really tragic to see yeah. uh, that happen. And, and I, I, I wish there was, there were, there was some alternative to that, but we tried and um, it failed, but, um, and I, I should, I should probably reach out to him again. It's, it's, it's been a few years, but um, I, I feel like people on an individual level should do what they can and try to help those um, that that are suffering around them and knowing that, you know, the, the, the starting point for them is much more different than their mm -hmm. own starting point. And everyone has their own starting point and there's no, again, this, this doesn't cut across any smooth racial lines of, of who's starting at which place, yeah. right? It's like, but there are people that are starting at a lower point than you are and whether that's white, black, Chinese or indigenous and specifically indigenous in our, in our case, because that was such a, a horrible atrocity committed by, um, by, by the European colonizers and the, the government at the time. So I, I encourage people to look for, for uh, community level and personal solutions to some of these problems and really help out because in, in some ways that, that is all we have. Um, on our day-to-day -day basis is like, regardless of when some government policy gets implemented or not, and whether it's effective and really taken on, showing other people that you love them and care for them and you want the best for them, I, I think is is absolutely necessary.
That's very well said. What was the reaction to this piece, the fallacy of white privilege and how it's corroding our society? Um, it, it was, it, depending on who you talk to, it was one of the best things written in recent times or one of the most idiotic, racist, crazy, alt-right things written. So it's, it, it depends who you're talking to and which political uh, orientation they have. Can you remember what it was like hitting the... Like, I assume you sent it off to the and then it was published separately. But when it came out, how you felt about it and then what the initial reaction was based on your own experience. Yeah. Yeah. So after publishing it, um, it was just being floated all across the Web. It was uh, everyone was talking about it in the kind of IDW, uh, politically active kind of contrarian circles. Um, lots of people saw it, read it, supported it. Uh, you know, Ben Shapiro, uh, Sam Harris. Uh, I think Jordan Peterson might have seen it. Uh, I, th I think Michaela definitely saw it. That's how I got on Michaela's podcast right. um, after that point. But the, the what did that mean to you? Because then we'll get to the negative stuff. But what was oh. that like to experience? Um, it was it was like just this this lightning bolt of 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 healthy pride and just reaping the rewards of my actions and, and my hard work was like oh wow like i can i can put in the hard work for this thing and it can really pay off in a deep in a, in a very deep and meaningful way okay. like I, I can spend hours and hours writing this thing and lots of people are going to uh respond to it in a well um meaningful way and um it was just well. It was just for the first time. I'm like learning that. Oh crap! I can write. I can you can I can write something, and it actually can be good and informative, and help shape people's perspectives. And so right away, that kind of light bulb started ringing in my head. Like, oh wow, okay, I can I can be good at this. And so then I started writing more and more, and doing some podcasts, and just kind of fell into this career of writing on on controversial topics that I really care about and presenting a narrative that defies any kind of simplistic uh, yeah. political agendas. Interesting. And what was the negative response to it? What was that experience like? Because then you go on to write uh, what it's really like to be canceled and how I overcame it. Yeah, the, the response um, in certain other areas was just like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Like, mm -hmm. really? Like, this is what you're doing? And there was one friend in particular that I highlighted in that piece a year later of there's one friend who was just so close to me who I, I really cared for and really enjoyed his company and really enjoyed laughing and goofing off and being fun with him. And he was just such a good friend. But we, he and I just got into this very brief back and forth over the BLM stuff. And he was just like, well, you know, black people are, you know, oppressed and, you know, the police is roundly executing, you know, black citizens for their skin color. And I was like, well, I don't think that's quite true. And here's the data and here's why I differ. And he just blocked me um, suddenly. And a bunch of other people that I thought were friends or allies or people who cared for me or supported me just unfollowed and didn't want anything to do with me again. And that was that that was that was quite saddening and it, and it took some time for that to really settle in because i thought some of those people might come back and yeah. you know might try to um restart some kind of friendship or apologize but some of those people just really didn't want to um come back and just kind of went their ways and and that was and that that was quite painful for some amount of time it was like wow like this 
political division can lead to friendships broken. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's kind of what happened. Did it surprise you that people could d- decide this based on like a th- like it's a thought, it's not a tangible thing, it's a perspective you have, and doesn't yeah. seem like it's not like you pushed him out of your car and drove away, like you didn't do something to him. It's huh. this thought in your head that he doesn't agree with that has nothing to do with whether or not you go grab ice cream. Did that surprise you? Right. Um. Yeah, on on some level, it just kind of shocked me. Like, you know, we were good friends from grade seven to grade 12 and a bit afterwards. And suddenly that amount of time, um, you know, whatever, six, seven years, that just all got through, that all just got thrown into the trash can and disregarded. And all that mattered was this political difference and one friendship just completely blown apart. That to me just, you know, showed this um, evangelical, aggressive and um, punitive strand of social justice uh, advocacy that so many people take on in universities and high schools where they feel deeply passionate about this idea. And if you deviate even slightly from, you know, putting young teenage girls on puberty blockers or reparations or you know blm or take your pick then suddenly you're a heretic and you should be uh looked down upon and you should be you know viewed as this like you know un you know this this person that should not be associated with and should not be respected it's like a lot of these ideas contain this big emotional charge where suddenly you can't have a conversation anymore and you're just seen as as an outlier as a lower caste and you're therefore you know, discriminating and, you know, perpetuating this kind of evil and just discriminatory hatred that you're trying to fight in a different way. Like you want to help black people and help trans people, but someone who has questions about the the science or efficacy of vaccines or, you know, puberty blockers or reassignment surgeries for transgender people, you, you know, they have a different reading of the data and you just hate them and think they're evil and discriminatory when, you know, they love people just as much as you do, but you're you know, casting these, um, these people into this you know, category of just untouchables. And th- th- that's just been um, immensely educational for me over the past few years is like seeing how these ideas, you know, collectivize and congeal and become this kind of rigid ideology where if you question it, then you're just hated. I have a lot of sympathy for the situation that you were in September 4th, 2021, because on the one hand, you're being recognized by people I'm sure you admire, by people you respect. Um, You're being invited on these shows, but in your own social circle, you've lost a friend. You've lost some of the community of people you've known for a long period of time. How did you process this period of your life? Um, it, it was very difficult and there was a lot of personal issues you know, I was talking about a bit before, which which I won't get into now, but I, I, I suspect at some point I'll, I'll talk about some of the personal issues that I've navigated, a lot of traumas and anxieties and fears um, that, that I've been working on in therapy. Um, uh, and, 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 and I mean, yeah, it's, it's reminding me of the conversation we just kind of closed the loop on. It's like... Working on those personal issues and feelings of depression and low self-esteem and chronic anxiety, um, like like really chronic anxiety, just to a debilitating level. It's like 
I, I had to take ownership for those specific problems because that was the only way out. Like my parents had kind of reached their limits and what they could do. And, you know, you reach a certain age and you're like, okay, my mom doesn't have all the answers. And in fact, some of the answers, you know, may not be the best and, you know, she's amazing, but I need to find my own path now and transcend my environment and look beyond my specific upbringing and see what else is out there. And and for me, you know, going to therapy, um, working, uh, uh, a, a little bit of psychedelics here and there, finding really good mentors and people that I care about, or people that care about me and want the best for me, um, certain religious communities and spiritual communities, immersing myself in certain areas um, was was absolutely the only way out for what I was dealing with and what I'm still dealing with to some yeah. to some degree. But it was really reaching out and finding good people and mentors and good positive healing ideas that could help me navigate the challenges that I was working through. Um, it's, it, it's, I mean, for all the, the bad that we've talked about, there's been, I would say, a lot of good in just how many people, you know, really uh, care about me and people that I found that have been mentoring me, checking in on me and people that I go to for help for, you know, therapy or just having a conversation about issues that I'm going through. uh, That's just been incredibly transformative over the past couple of years is finding the right people and accessing the right ideas and the right kind of corrective behaviors and just recalibrations of how I look at myself and my traumas and my Mm -hmm. anxieties. Um, It's it's I, I have a lot to be thankful for in that regard. Beautiful. I'm very worried about Bill C-11, Bill C-16. I'm worried about the censorship in Canada. I'm worried about the CRTC. But the thing that I worry about more right now is self-censorship. And I thought the piece that you wrote about uh, what it's really like to be canceled, it really touches on this. Like, it's easier to stay quiet. It's easier, like you don't risk anything. And it feels like so many people when I talk about, like I hate land acknowledgements. I think they're stupid. I don't think they're useful. I don't, indigenous communities, we don't do them. Like that's not what we yeah. want. Oh really, you, you guys don't do them either? No. Okay. No, we don't like, okay. yeah, yeah, it's it's just right. not like what we ever asked for. It's done in educational institutions, but it's not something we're at. We don't start our meetings with land Like it's just right. two different worlds. And I, and I assume you, you share what I was saying earlier, like, like those like, which piece of land belonged to who at which time? Like, it's not always one group belonging to one land, right? It's like different groups vying for that. It's complicated. Like, archaeology, like, we have a David Chepe who I've interviewed. He's an archaeologist here. He can tell you, like, the facts on which grave sites where, like, Chawathal had our grave site. Like, he can do a pretty good job of laying that out. So it's it's not crazy in question. Like, obviously, there's going to be challenges of exactly what line we're drawing. But for the most part, like, at this point, we'd just be happy to get some of our land back. Like, yeah. we're not asking for 100% back. Right. Well, um, well I mean, like, which which groups are vying for that land and therefore lost, like, one group that may want some part of a land, and but that group barbarically, you know, killed them or slaughtered them or attacked them, and they didn't get that land. So that group that lost out on that land, you know, what's happening to them? You know, like, like, like I mean, all, all some that, of that history is that over like 300 years old. So some yeah. some people just don't yeah. like have that information. Right. But I would say that that's not like a common issue within indigenous communities is like, oh, well, maybe 10,000 years ago, this person, like at this point, we just, uh-huh. we want that land right over there that would allow us to grow our community in a healthy way. It's, right. we're not, we're not going crazy back 2000 years ago. Right. Like what was going on? Yeah. I mean, I mean is, is there not like, from what I understand, there, there are certain areas though, where it's like 
two competing tribes were, yes. were warring for that area. And so, you know, we might give a land acknowledgement for one particular tribe in this area, but there might have been other tribes vying for that um, in, in potentially recent history, but they lost out on that. So it's like, which which is their land and which is, you know, who, whose land goes where, you know? I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, it's I don't, I don't like, have the answers. I, yeah. I think that that would be like an interesting intellectual conversation that I'm sure yeah. communities have. But like today, we're like, we want this piece of land. And maybe another community goes, we want that piece of land. But we right. would be happy to hash that out. Right. But at this point in time, it's like, okay. we don't even have access to the land. So right. that's like premature, like I think just premature in the right. practical sense of actually working towards getting certain spots back. But yeah. self-censorship is yeah. like, that's what your story rings so clear, is that there's, this is what happens to you when you speak your opinions. Like there's an actual consequence and that's so frustrating to me because I don't think that your article was that controversial. And even if you disagree with what you had to say, there's no reason that people should have been unfriending you, hating on you, saying anything like it's just an opinion. It's a perspective that you're allowed to have as a person on planet Earth. And we've hit this point where so many people reach out to me privately and say, I agree with what you said, but I could never say it out loud. Yeah. And you talked about that exact same thing. And that's oh, such yeah. a terrifying position. So many people will say, I, I hate land acknowledgments. But I do them because I don't want to get in trouble. And it's like, well, that's actually not helping my indigenous community yeah. in any way, shape, or form. Mm. And we've created all these kind of rules of what you're supposed to placate to for indigenous communities that my indigenous community doesn't even know you're doing. So I don't like that indigenous communities kind of get blamed for issues like land acknowledgments because it's not something we're asking for. It's not something like if you go to an indigenous right. community's re website, we're not asking for it. And to say that is so controversial yeah. And it shouldn't be. It should just be a perspective you're allowed to have. So I'm just curious what thoughts you have. Have things gotten worse in terms of being able to share your opinions? Have things gotten better? Do you feel like you're more comfortable to speak your opinions? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you kind of come out of the closet as an independent thinker and you've kind of been canceled or hated on or initially excluded by certain friends. So you eventually find your own tribe. You find, you know, various groups that like you and and then there are dangers in that too, right? It's like kind of this reinforcement of ideology, these echo chambers that yeah. get, created on, get created on the left and the right and the all, all the middle space in between that. But I've um, at, at this point, I'm I I worry literally never about what I want to say because I've I've already kind of come out and you know made the the heretical points that I've made, and that's rubbed some people the wrong way and they hate me and they don't want to be <laughs> friends anymore. Yeah. But there's other people that really like my work now. And at, at, at this point, for me, truth is the only thing that matters. And if that means that some people on the right or the left aren't going to like it, then they're not going to like it. I, I'm still going to um, pursue the truth no matter where uh, it leads me. And that, you know, with COVID, I kind of took some controversial positions, which I, I don't think should be controversial. But that alienated some people before who supported my work, um, and 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 that's that that's fine to me as long as people understand where I'm coming from, and um, are honestly engaging with my work, and looking at a diversity of sources. Then that to me is a noble pursuit. But what ends up happening is many people you know, take a position, take a certain line on a topic, and they just become attached to that, even when weeks or months or years later, that that position becomes farcically idiotic to take and is not in line with the data. And we've seen some prominent intellectuals and media figures um, behave in, in certain ways that have been quite surprising um, and unprincipled. Um, but I, but I, I think that's uh, the only way out is, is having 
having certain core principles and not being married to our ideas. You know, one thing Joe Rogan says um, quite a bit on his podcast is like, we can't have this egoic attachment to our ideas because they are just ideas and they're, yeah. they're you know, those ideas often change and the science may change on one topic uh, or, or another. We, we might find out 10 years from now that something that you and I are both doing right now in our lives is harmful or dangerous because, you know, science evolves and we learn new things and we correct our models accordingly. It's never a static uh, fundamentalist uh, religious doctrine that can't be altered or changed or reinterpreted or, you know, translated a different way. It's, it's, you know, the, the landscape of views on a number of different topics often um, is quite wide, and we have to find our we have to find our footing, and recognize that different people can reasonably disagree on the specific topic, mm-hmm. and it's not a matter of um, black and white uh, thinking. It, it's often getting into the complexities and really uh, absorbing some of the data and figuring out what's what's right, what makes sense, and navigating that um, uh, complex, you know, territory, like like the, the kind that we just navigated of yeah. historical wrong, you know, injustice in the past um, versus you know, individual behavior, ownership, government policy, culture, psychology. It's like yeah. these topics are very, very complicated, and they're not easily – um, digestible on a strictly left-wing or right-wing basis. Yeah. One of my next questions was around, as a journalist, how you feel about BC, Bill C-11, Bill C-16, what's going on? We're seeing more and more journalists being laid off. As an independent journalist, what is your kind of understanding of the landscape and what's going on? Yeah, well, it's 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 this, you know, we've talked a lot about the social justice ideas, and I think it's a... Uh, it's it's another incarnation of the social justice ideology that the government has to come in and promote Canadian content and ind- indigenous creators and minority creators. And so uh, Bill C-18, Bill C-11, they've come in and said, you know, Netflix, you know, we have to follow this mandate uh, to uh, preferentially amplify and boost Canadian content creators. And they've tried doing that with Instagram and Meta and as as us Canadians, we know if you go on Instagram and you want to look at New York Times or CBC or you know whoever, you can't access it anymore on, on IG, right? Which is just a complete failure and was avoidable and predictable because those platforms, Facebook, you know, or Meta as it's called, and Instagram you know, said that they wouldn't be able to accommodate that because they're already providing a service anyways to those you know, um, companies like the CBC and Global News. And, and to me, it's just so interesting to see this like dichotomy of the government wanting to come in and like promote um, journalists here in Canada um, because I mean the business model you know in Canada is failing and less and less people are interested in what news anchor at nine o'clock has to say on CBC or what you know like I'm not even sure if I can name a single person that works for Global News I could probably name a couple for CBC Mark Madriga. The weather guy. Is that Global News? I think so. Okay, well, I, I, I apologize, man. I don't know who you are. <laughs> Maybe I'll meet you one day. Um, but it's like the Canadian content is declining and is less and less popular. The business model is failing. And the government in this um, similar, this kind of equality of outcomes, compassion, um, this kind of uplifting these groups has come in and tried to impose these mandates on other companies to promote their own creators. And my question is, 
why can't we just have great Canadian content that's just great that people want to listen to? Like, why do we need the government to come in and say Netflix, Spotify, Rumble, Instagram, please, you know, pay back CBC or promote CBC and the Globe and Mail? It's like, I, I want to read the Globe and Mail because I love the Globe and Mail, like, like, you know, hypothetically. And there are some good writers there. This idea that the government has to come in uh, to me is just laughable when you're seeing on the other side, like in the U.S. and, and, and not even U.S. because this this is I'm I'm kind of part of this now. This movement of writers on Substack who are making millions of dollars, like Barry Weiss, the Free Press, just published in there recently on, on the Bill C18 topic. Alex Berenson, Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald left Substack and is on Rumble now and doing fantastic there. Um, and many other independent uh, uh, journalists and content creators on Substack. Oftentimes, it's like one or two people or three or four people generating like, you know, $2 million or $4 million or even, you know, 400K, 500K. It's like, why is their model working so well? Yeah. And why is the CBC's model or the Global Mail model not working as well? It's like, instead of the government trying to impose various mandates, um, those models, you know, those uh, companies and outlets should look at what's uh, best for them and see or, or what's um, conducive to economic and cultural and just political success, you know, for their outlets. Like why, you know, or how can the CBC become more and more relevant and more and more successful in this, you know, global competing marketplace of ideas, right? Yeah. How, how can they become better? How can they become more honest and have a diversity of opinions and platform conservative, libertarian and, and liberal writers and offer um, differing viewpoints on different platforms and different formats and, and cater more and more to Gen Z? It's, that to me is a much better conversation and what should be happening rather than the government um, trying to play a role in this. What's crazy is to think about like Gad Saad, Jordan Peterson, Michaela Peterson, uh, Ariel Hawani, like uh, Tom McDonald. Like you think of big names that blow up, yeah. they go straight to the U.S. because a there's a Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, there's That's more the opportunities yeah. and there's less restriction. Gad Saad had like a whole piece on how like the Quebec and Canadian government were taking like fifty percent of his book sales on his biography right. of his life. And he was like, But this is my life. Like how are you taking money on my story for yeah. my and that was just like such a good like editorial on like where we're at and how crazy things can be. And that was before Bill C eleven. Bill like it seems like we don't want Canadian creators to succeed in some ways by implementing this where it's focused on the CBC instead of the individual creators that are actually gaining voice, gaining traction and gaining recognition. Yeah, well, the policy would cover CBC and other Canadian creators, yeah. so it is designed to help uh, Canadian creators. But I, I just think the question we should be asking is, why do Canadian creators need help? Like, I, like I, I don't need help. I mean, do do you need help from the government to definitely to not from the government promote your podcast? Yeah. It's like your podcast should be good because it's good. It, it should yeah. be watched because people want to watch it, not yeah. because it's you know the government mandated you know, Spotify to put you, you know, put you up on trending. I mean, that, that would help you, but it's like, you know, why is that needed? It's, it's, it's the same idea to many of these social justice Affirmative ideologies. Action, yeah. yeah. It's like, we, we have to, you know, prioritize or amplify things from the top down rather than looking at it from the bottom up. Yeah. And the sad reality is, is that Canadian media is dying. And I mean, you know, sad is one word to you to, to use, or you could be happy depending on <laughs> where you, where you line up politically. Um, but, um, you know, that's the reality. And if 
Canadian Canadian media like CBC and Global News will you know die into irrelevance in a few years, then 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 let it die, or it can figure out what it can do to uh, promote its content and to cater to a diverse range of people across political spectrums, mm-hmm. and then suddenly more people will will trust it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'll I'll be happy to read Global News or CBC if. I find it interesting. I mean, currently, I, I don't really find it that interesting. I mean, I, apart from some news articles, I don't have like a lot of, like, like I said, I, I can't even name a single person on global news. Um, I, maybe I should check out your guy that you recommended. He's just but, the weather guy. Yeah. He's been there for like 20 years. I, maybe he just says the weather really well. Maybe I should just <laughs> He's killing there. it. He's taking care of things. But, but, but this, I feel like we should be having a conversation of how to get the best ideas out there and... If if we have a lack of talent here in Canada, if for whatever reason we're, we don't have as many big journalists and outlets thriving, then those outlets should look in the mirror. Those journalists should look in the mirror and see how they can be better rather than Trudeau coming in and mandating Spotify to, to amplify certain podcasters over others. Yeah. Uh, in 2021 of March, you interviewed Jordan Peterson. That had to have been a moment in your life where you were incredibly proud of yourself. He was gaining prominence, yeah. making an impact. What was it like to book that interview yeah. and to run that? Yeah, so that was um, behind the scenes. It was Michaela Peterson, who I had become good friends with, and she invited me on her podcast. And that was before Jordan kind of came back to the forefront. And when... Uh, he did come back and he was doing his book tour for uh, 12 More Rules for Life. Um, I, I reached out to Michaela and said, I'd love to interview him in the New York Post. And and she was like, yeah, look, we're, we're doing very, a very limited amount of interviews. And I think there was an interview at the time by, I think, the Sunday Times that was really quite uh, bad and uh, was disfavorable and, and didn't... Um, yeah, from what I remember, was not fair to Michaela and Jordan, um, if memory serves. But in any case, I reached out to Michaela and said, I'd you know, love to interview him. And she's like, okay, the, this is going to be one of two or one of three interviews he, he would do with the journalist. And I felt incredibly honored and, and privileged to, to have that opportunity. And I remember then getting on the phone with Jordan um, for the interview um, over the phone and there was a couple of calls there and I just pitched to him point blank. I was like, I feel like this interview we're going to do, let's just record it because I feel like there's a lot of interesting topics to talk about. Um, and I have some, uh, noteworthy things to bounce off of you and to just get your thoughts on about religion, mysticism, suffering, spirituality, identity, politics, inequality, social justice, cancel culture, etc." And I just kind of just shot my shot, and uh, he was like, "Okay, sure, we, we we can take a look at that. We can mm-hmm. we can maybe do that." And then his producer, uh, he seemed interested. Eric Eric Foster at the time, um, he's a great guy, great friend of mine. He's a great podcast producer, has his own company, and, and is doing amazing work. And so so here we were. We, you know, we set up the date, um, whatever it was, maybe a February or March of. 2020 or not maybe 2021 i think it was yeah. well the i think the interview came out only last year if i'm if i'm not mistaken um i can't remember if it came out last year or the year before but it was the interview was done and it got released like a year and a half later oh, wow. from where yeah they, they have a massive queue like all these right. interesting guests that jordan interviews and i'm honestly i remember like 
just the days before I'm like, oh crap, I'm interviewing Jordan Peterson. Oh shit. Oh my God. Like, Jordan, like this guy who's just incredible, heroic, uplifting influence in my life who I've looked up to mm. just so much and who I just love and just learn so much from all. Every, every time I listen to Jordan, it's like, okay, rewind the last five <laughs> minutes and put it like, okay, you're saying that, okay, all right. Yeah. You know, it, it, it takes time to really understand 100%. what he says because he, he, he thinks on a really multi-dimensional 5d level where it's like he's painting this incredible portrait of of just this this collage of diverse interesting complex and just sometimes tangentially related ideas across you know religion philosophy mysticism psychedelics political science etc and it's it's just a, a pleasure to see his mind work in real time and to see how he thinks about these things on a very deep intuitive level and so find myself look, looking at him like oh hey jordan what's up and it was just like it was such a crazy moment for me because i'm like this guy i look up to so much we're about to have a conversation and i was i was fairly nervous before and i was like oh my god like am i going to do a good job at this or am i going to suck or what if he doesn't like me and it, it just ended up just we end up flowing in this, this really smooth and seamless manner and getting into this uh, flow of conversation that I, f I found really productive and nutritious. And we, we went to all these deep areas. And I mean, he said so many things in that conversation that I, that, that really stuck out to me and really stayed with me for a while. And on one level, it was just great to hear him, you, you know, get a bit of reassurance for where I was at. Cause he at one point said like, you know, like, why am I talking to you? It's like, we were talking about identity politics and, um, uh, and uh, racial privilege and disadvantage. And he was like, why am I talking to you right now? It's like, not because you're this brown Sikh guy that I want to get diversity points from or because I just you know have to do this, but because you're an interesting young guy. I, th I think he said, you're an interesting, bright character and I want to hear what you have to say. And I was like, oh shit, all right, all right. I'll take that, I'll, I'll take that. I'll put that up on my wall and yeah. just remember that as, as a great quote. Take, take it to my grave. Um, but uh, we, we got into this flow and I mean, he, again, the, the way he thinks, it's like, wow, he's really able to weave across different domains of philosophy and science and religion um, and economics uh, and, uh, in, in a way that I think is unique to him and very difficult to do to, to this kind of juggling act of putting all these ideas together and you know, doing this, 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 creating this incredible collage of like oh, lobsters and Narnia and Harry Potter and psychology and Jesus and fucking DMT. It's like, <laughs> what, what, what did you just say, man? Like it's, it's, it's truly an art. And so when we were talking, uh, one thing he said in particular, when I asked him about religion and the decline of religious interest and, you know, religious affiliations among Gen Z and this kind of itch, this, this thirst for spirituality and for, connection with divinity um and the importance of that in our lives i i asked him about it and about why we why he thinks it's necessary and important to living a good meaningful life um and he responded in this totally unconventional unorthodox way he's like rav why do people go to a rave he's like you know there's music there's dance there might be substances involved you know, there might be mdma or even if there's not you're at a rave, there's loud music, you're kind of collectively in this like community of people that are dedicated, that are kind of, 
unlike a kind of religious ceremony, I mean, even on a basic level of rave, you're just there to have a good time together with people and you're kind of synchronized to the um the the rhythm of the music and and you're experiencing this like collective ecstasy again yeah. with actual ecstasy or not it doesn't matter yeah. but you're having this powerful experience that is spiritual at its foundational level i mean you see like all the fanfare around the taylor swift eras tour it's like what she's doing is a form of religiosity in the sense that it taps into something so deep, so deeply wired in our DNA for connecting with others and for coming together and for singing these anthems, these, these you know, in, in Taylor Swift's case, I mean, I, I thought her last album, Midnight's, was absolutely fantastic. And then just, just, I think her best album out of all albums that she's created, and I was just stunned by um, all, all these songs about heartbreak and human emotion and about uh, self-identity and uh, interacting with other people. It's like th- those ideas and those experiences, good or bad in her songs, people are coming to the Eras tour prepared and in this sort of collective yeah. ecstasy and joy and fervor and kind of enjoying these songs and taking it in as a group, not just as an individual, but as a group and um, enjoying the kind of mystique around what she brings to the table and what energy she um, uh, symbolizes in that particular experience. It's like that's fundamentally spiritual, even if there's not an exact dogma attached to it. It's like there's something there of like the way my little sister looks at Taylor Swift is like, I mean, f- for better or worse, or for you want to say that there might be some downside to that, I don't know, but it, it, there's something there that I think is so deeply rooted in the way we communicate and the way we interface with reality that we need to figure out more and more ways to have experiences like that, that are surrounded, th- that revolve around good, ethical, uh, uplifting and communal ideas that we find in Christianity, that, that we find at a church service or at a Buddhist temple. Like We need to figure out more and more ways to come together across religious and political boundaries and acknowledge our common humanity and connect on this deeply intrinsic, indivisible, unified level of us as a collective consciousness that is all in it together to use to use a tired cliche that is trying to figure out what to do and how to make sense of reality in this limited time of whatever 60 70 80 90 years you know at best you know for for the the healthiest of us and i think figuring out figuring out more and more ways to have those places um where we can come together and experience self-transcendence and then come back to our reality, refreshed, reinvigorated, and galvanized to live our life. I think that that is what adds color to our life that a lot of people are missing in this atheistic and overly scientifically reductionist life where we're kind of missing the the ego-shattering, self-transcending surrender to something bigger than us. I love that. I definitely agree with you and kind of just mentioned the name of the podcast with the bigger than me kind of oh, mentality. There you go. Um, there you go. Also, you've you've delved into so many really interesting topics, but the next one uh, is also controversial: COVID nineteen, the vaccines, yep. your conversation with Mark Cuban, another uh, person many people have heard of. Well, yeah. What is that experience like? Uh, how do you process what sort of took place, and how do you feel about it now? Yeah. So to be clear, Mark and I didn't actually have a conversation. It was just on Twitter. No, that's sorry. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Back and forth. And then there's some behind the scenes 
uh, information there that I got got to be careful what to say, what not to say. But uh, it's kind of a long story, but uh, got a bit of a tap on the shoulder by 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 the goat Joe Rogan a couple of years ago when he was being attacked widely for uh, at, at that specific point talking about the the connection between COVID vaccines and myocarditis, heart inflammation in young males. And all he did was talk about it and acknowledge that it's a real issue and, and should not be downplayed. And it should absolutely factor into our calculus for who should be recommended to get the vaccines and whether it's a, a wise and beneficial public health policy at all for um, young, healthy people in particular. And uh, he was getting widely attacked. Uh, one individual in particular was Mark Cuban. And Joe just asked me... Um, uh, kind of behind the scenes to kind of kind of play a role in uh, uh, engaging with Mark, um, who I then did engage with um, behind the scenes over email, and we had long form exchanges on this topic. And he just revealed his uh, his idiocy and his nutbaggery just across these emails. Like he was just not willing to acknowledge that the COVID vaccines happen to be the most dangerous pharmaceutical intervention promoted across society, likely in history. I mean, it's hard to paint big brushes like that, but this is, this is really the first big experimental um, pharmaceutical intervention that's been promoted to everyone um, across society. And unfortunately, as much as I don't want this to be the case at all, and you know, suddenly, Ravarora, you know, I'm suddenly spending you know hours and hours reading epidemiology and cardiology studies on vaccines is a topic that I never ever would have thought I would have written about or taken any interest in I mean never interested in vaccines or epidemiology like just not not my area I don't care for that topic intrinsically but here I was in this face of like these vaccines were being pushed on the public without sufficient knowledge and information around safety and efficacy and a lot of those narratives kind of changed over time. And we there was public health admissions of, okay, it doesn't stop transmission, even though we said it was, and we forced you and we mandated you to get it. Um, but there just hasn't been a clear reconciliation and concession of how dangerous these vaccines truly were on a population level in terms of the rates of adverse events that we saw was one in 800. One in 800 people who got the COVID vaccine experienced a serious adverse event rate, a serious adverse event such as myocarditis or menstrual irregularities um, or blood clotting or lung issues or autoimmune issues, et cetera. And, and, and that 1 in, 1 in 800, by the way, comes from a, uh, a top of the tier study in, in, the, in the journal Vaccine by Dr. Joseph Freeman, who I've interviewed on my podcast. And he looked at this, he went straight into the Pfizer and Moderna trials and counted the, the serious adverse events and came up with one in 800, which is just um, just com completely just just stunning and um, damning for public health that that level of adverse event rates um, existed, given that all of their vaccines that we know uh, prior have adverse event rates of one in a million right now on the market. If you go, go and get your flu shot, go and get your you know, measles vaccine, one in a million, you know, roughly, but these these vaccines, the adverse event rate was one in eight hundred. So going back to my Mark Cuban debate, we, you know, we were going back and forth, and he was just unwilling to acknowledge any of any of the points I was making. Um, and this was in 
January of 2022. And fast forward to um, this summer in August, you know, Joe is talking to uh, PPD, Patrick by David. Mm-hmm. And it was just so crazy to see like something that happened in that long ago suddenly led to something now where Joe was talking to Patrick and Patrick asked him about, you know, Mark Cuban's been criticizing you and attacking you. And what do you think about him? And Joe then mentioned my exchange with him and about how, you know, he thought I was right. And, and uh, what I was saying was compelling and what um, Mark was saying was wrong. And uh, I posted that clip on Twitter and Mark saw it and he just went on this. Um, I want to be fair to him. I mean, he definitely got triggered, but then started asking some really hard hitting um, questions, some of which were just idiotic and ignorant and kind of detracting from the issue. But at the same time, you know, he just really wanted to engage on this topic. And so he asked a number of questions to me and we just exchanged long, like essay responses on Twitter yeah. and people can go check it out on uh, my Substack, the illusion of consensus where I uh, serialized our responses back and forth. Cause we, I think we, you know, I responded to him like five or six times and he asked me, you know, four or five big questions that I responded to. And then Joe, you know, retweeted some of my stuff and it kind of became this big thing. Um, but in in a nutshell, that exchange just revealed to me how um, ideological someone like Mark is, like in this very ideologically insulated, billionaire, wealthy, Democrat, New York Times, Atlantic reading coalition of people that, you know, are getting a certain narrative about what's going on about free speech and censorship and, you know, think Joe Rogan is, is you know, the, the devil and Elon Musk is just a horrible person and mRNA vaccines were beneficial for everyone and cancel culture isn't a real thing and, you know, Jordan Peterson is a, is a fraud. Like there's all these kind of ideas that people have. We, you talk to people of a certain ideological echo chamber and that's fully what they think. Like they hate Joe Rogan. They hate JP with a, with a fierce passion. And they think vaccines were just beneficial for everyone because the scientists said that at the time. And, you know, it's, it's, it's in front of everyone's eyes. People can go back and, and read it. Um, but Mark was just unwilling to recognize what I was saying in that specific context, which is that um, on net, the best available evidence shows that for young, healthy people, particularly young men, the vaccines were net negative, not in that everyone was dropping dead or that there was everyone's getting heart attacks from vaccines, but that on net, if you look at the benefits and the advantages to va- mass vaccinating, say, young and healthy people, between the ages of 20 and 25, and you compare that to the side effects, including myocarditis and menstrual irregularities in young women, it appears to be the case that the, the negatives far outweighed the positives. Um, and that's that's been my conclusion journalistically. Um, but Mark was just unwilling to recognize any of that. And so it was just, just sad to see him just maintain his ideology at all costs and not actually look at the evidence and data that I was providing. What was it like to go in on a topic that you're not an expert on? That, like, of course, journalists are not like experts in one thing. They they learn about lots of different things. But what was it like to start to get interested in? You said it wasn't something that you ever imagined yeah. you would do. What was it like to have to approach this in comparison to perhaps the identity politics, which it sounds like caught your eye initially? Yeah, yeah. Well, th- this one was just writing what man COVID vaccines was done in the aftermath of 
the federal and provincial vaccine mandates where suddenly I couldn't go to a gym and exercise um, unless I had the COVID vaccine. And thankfully, Murph's gym, shout out to Kyle Murphy, um, he actually kept things open and defied the, the public health orders, which is one of the most courageous, audacious, and noble things um, that, that one can do is in the face of, of I mean, tyranny is not uh, a hyperbolic word in, in my view when we, when we look at what really happened and actually defying these tyrannical, censorious, authoritarian measures that were imposed on the public um, was the right thing to do. It, it, was, it was right and ethical to resist some of this nonsense. Um, and, you know, that's initially kind of what got me going was like, okay, I'm being mandated to get this thing that um, at that time they said it stopped transmission. And the, the whole idea, I remember back on Twitter, it was like, okay, you know, when I was debating people and I was like, I don't know if I want to get this. And I condemn mandates and they were like, well, what about my grandma, Rav? What, what about my grandpa? What about your grandparents? Well, shouldn't you take it for them? And there was problems with the logic at that point too. Um, But obviously moving forward, that logic just became antiquated and that was no longer, there was no community benefit to vaccination in the long term. It it just stopped transmission for a couple months. Um, But at that point, I I refused to take an experimental vaccine because my government thought that that was in my best interest. And I did not see the relevant data. If I saw the data that it was, oh, my rate of dying, you know, would, you know, go down by 100x and there was no, there was no myocarditis, there was no serious adverse events associated with this vaccine or they were very, very rare. They were one in a million, 100%, like, give me the shots right now. Like, like if, 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 if I saw that, but that's not what I saw. And those concerns that I had at the time were vindicated in the long term as more and more data on myocarditis has come out, um, Brett Weinstein and I j- just did a great podcast, and we were talking about some of the recent data um, studies from South Korea and, and Hong Kong showing that individuals who got myocarditis in the vaccine at the one-year follow-up, 50% of them still had evidence of, of scarring in their heart. And if you talk to the CDC and the FDA and Mark Cuban, they have no answer for that. They just blindly, ideologically promoted the solution that... To, to be charitable, they thought was the right thing to do because the CDC and the FDA said so. But the problem is, and this is the title of my substack, the, the illusion of consensus, is that the, the experts that were promoting these vaccines were of a very specific kind. And there were other experts that were sidelined, marginalized, and censored, such as my colleague, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Uh, we run the illusion of consensus together. And he's not some anti-vaccine quack. He's not some right-wing asshole. He's a a tenured Stanford professor of epidemiology with a a stellar background. He's authored many, many great scientific studies. He early on was doing the studies in in Santa Clara County on finding the true infection fatality rate of COVID rather than what was being presented at the time, which is like 1%, 2%, or 3% infection fatality rate. And his studies looking at a broad sample of infections found more... Um, a rate more along the lines of 0.2%, as in, but 0.2% of people were dying of COVID with a very sharp age gradient over 65 and plus and comorbidities were, were heavily impacted, but people of um, younger ages and healthier um, uh, backgrounds were, were not as affected. Um, and so that to me was 
uh, just incredibly educational was looking at this topic. Okay, what's right and wrong? What are the experts saying? Okay, FDA and CDC is saying this, and some experts cited in the New York Times and the CBC and, you know, uh, uh, Canadian public health agencies are saying X. But hold on, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, Dr. Martin Koldorf of Harvard, Dr. Vinay Prasad, I mean, we could go on and on about all these dissident doctors who oppose these mandates and had differing perspectives and felt that their voices were being stifled and, in many cases, um, actually censored. Like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, he was blacklisted on Twitter because he was against lockdowns and uh, mask mandates and vaccine mandates, and he suffered uh, the consequence of that and, and school locked uh, school closures as well. And so uh, for me, I'm looking at this with an open mind. What I felt like was happening was that certain experts were being preferentially selected in mainstream media circles and other ones like Dr. J, Dr. Martin, Tracy Beth Hogue, et cetera, were not um, being respected and acknowledged. And so you had this illusion of consensus that kind of perpetuated in the pandemic where people just said, well, oh, the experts say masks work. Oh, the experts say um, vaccines are good for everyone. Oh, the experts say lockdowns are effective and, and good for us. When in reality, experts disagreed on those points. And, and what really mattered was the evidence. And some experts got the evidence and the core facts more right than others. And in my mind, the experts chosen by CNN and CDC and FDA were wrong about many of those core points. And other experts also, you know, from institutions like Stanford and Harvard got things right. And, and we should trust those experts more than the ones that got it wrong. But instead, there's been this whole charade of doubling down and, you know, saying, well, oh, uh, you know, those experts were right at the time and I was right at the time and I'm still right. And, and, and anyway, we, there's all these internal politics that have just just become so inflammatory where people just don't want to admit that they were wrong. And it's been uh, quite tragic to see people lose their credibility on that front. That's probably one of the scariest things about the whole circumstance is that we're not grading people right now based on the answers they gave. What was their position to school lockdowns? Did school lockdowns work? Like actually just judging people based on like a resume. Did you get things right throughout the pandemic? Did you call things out correctly? Or did you get a bunch of things wrong? And we're still calling you the person to look to for the next right. pandemic. Like if anything, we need to get some of these things straight because we know another pandemic is going to happen. Yeah. Not today, not tomorrow, maybe not next year, maybe not in the next five years. But inevitably, these things arise. Hopefully, they're not man-made like the last one. But yeah. inevitably, these issues are going to arise again. And we need a trusted scientific mechanism. Because right now, I don't think people trust the next vaccine they come out with. I just saw on yeah. Global News this morning, they were like, only 37% of British Columbians are getting like the fourth booster. And it's like, okay, right. that's clear that people have lost faith or said, this is no longer worth it, or I'm no longer interested. So we can't have like a dissuaded population that's not confident moving forward in yeah. the institutions that we rely on. And I very much like Eric Weinstein's argument on like, we need to find trust in our institutions again, but trust based on evidence. And that's not yes. something that many people have right now. And so we're in this very weird time. I'm wondering what you felt like during this period was your responsibilities as a journalist discussing a topic like, of course, immediately people are going to go, well, you're not a scientist, Rav, like you don't know what's going on. How did you process that? And what principles did you bring when you were posting on Substack? People trust your voice. How did you process making sure that you are principled in your approach? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I was always evidence-based, citing studies, not citing quack scientists or just bloggers coming up with statistics. I was always refer, you know, referring to real evidence um, and what I thought was the best evidence. And you know, to be honest, like still playing the expert game to a degree because you know this whole thing of well, you know, you should trust the experts, and oh well, you know, some people don't care about experts, and yes, there are some conspiratorial people on the right and the left that don't want to trust any experts that won't get any other vaccine and will never ever trust any medical intervention and thing that the government's trying to implant us with 5G and all this stuff, right? There, there are those people out there. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was, it was looking at the best experts, which experts got these things right, which experts seemed the most reasonable and were, were able to change their opinion or take the red pill and take the controversial position, even if it damaged their careers to some degree, you know, who are those experts that have a clean record over COVID or or just are striving to be as accurate as possible and to talk about real issues like vaccine side effects and the, the harms of lockdowns and school closures and, um, and, and not just deferentially just bl- trusting those experts as just purveyors of the gospel, but talking to them and learning about their ideas and being educated. And um, again, using scientific sources, I mean, like, all my work was predicated on studies and reports and analyses done by leading scholars on the dangers of the vaccine. Because if if my work was not based on that, then it should be discarded and it should be bullshit. No one should trust it. But I was always sourcing from um, scientific journals and peer-reviewed studies. Um, that doesn't mean it's automatically right because everyone uses their own. You can find studies to approve anything, right? You can You can find you know, peer-reviewed analyses that approve your perspective and not others, and people can get stuck in these echo chambers. But for me, um, it was, you know, it was was really about having an honest conversation about the data. And I'm, to some degree, still perplexed why some people just lost their sanity. And people that I thought were very, very reasonable and still are very reasonable on certain topics who just failed to be critical and skeptical enough in the face of an emergency. And it seems to be that fear and death and tragedy seem to be the cause for for why that happened. Like why some people who are very reasonable, who just got so afraid of COVID and arguably to some degree that's reasonable, although to some degree it's also not when you're worried about vaccinating your 11 and 15 year olds, like they're infinitesimally low risk. You're, you know, you're driving on the highway every day with your kids and not worrying about it. Um, and yet you want to just right away push. I mean, there was some very credible public intellectuals who were like, I raced to go at the, the, the pharmacy to get my 15 year old and my 22 year old vaccinated as soon as possible. And the only explanation for that is fear, sufficient fear will, will motivate people to rush and make irrational decisions. And I think that's what we saw is, is people lose their rationality in the face of real death and real calamity. Like people were dying of COVID. In some cases, ICUs were, were filled up, but almost always, and I, again, I failed to understand why some people did not really see this, 
those people were primarily over the age of 65 or severely obese and diabetic and had lung disease and had all these problems. They were not people like me or, or pe people like yourself, presumably, if you're, you're not dying tomorrow. Aaron. I'm not. Okay. I don't plan to. Yeah, yeah thankfully you're not. The, 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 the people in hospitals dying of COVID were not you know, my mom, you know, 45 year old healthy women or you're pregnant. The way, the way the vaccines were pushed on pregnant women and breastfeeding women when there was no evidence of safety um, in those particular people, to be honest, is quite unforgivable in, in what happened. But people saw death, people experienced fear, people had this, 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 this mortality shock of like, oh God, people are dying, I might die. But they failed to do the reasonable calculus and say, okay, who's dying of COVID? Who's in the ICUs? How effective is the vaccine? What do we know and what do we not know? Yeah. That calculation was not made um, sufficiently enough. And so you had people plunge into unreason, in my opinion. And the other tragedy, and this has been talked at ad nauseum by Joe Rogan, is that we didn't push health on people. We didn't push exercise, fitness, yeah. going to the gym, taking vitamin D, taking vitamin C, living a healthy life, taking your vitamins. We didn't push any of those things. The only other piece on this topic is just how do you or how do you hold yourself accountable for mistakes you might make in writing, looking back on a topic? Maybe I would have written this differently. Maybe I wouldn't have included that. Who holds you accountable? Um, well, I've had the privilege of collaborating with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who's served as kind of a fact checker on a couple of, of pieces at least, but but at least endorsing many of the pieces that I've published. And so, so like when I'm when I'm writing these things, like recently I interviewed Dr. Anish Koka, cardiologist in Philadelphia, great guy, super pro vaccine, got you know three vaccines. One of his daughters was immunocompromised, so he was alarmed by COVID early on, took it very very seriously. But in my interview with him, he says, I regret vaccinating young, healthy people when I was not sure about safety and efficacy. I just blindly followed the FDA and the CDC, and I was wrong to do that. I, and I wasn't wrong for elderly people, where it seems to be more clear that there's some benefit there, but I was wrong to vaccinate young, healthy people at my clinic. That, to me, is just immensely... Um, uh, it, it's... It's incredible to see that level of humility when someone says that they got something wrong and they're going to now do better in the future. And I, I've, you know, again, I, I've played this expert game. I've never been this sort of guy who's just blogging and like doing his own statistical, you know, manipulation and you know, figuring out his own stats. Like I've, I've always talked to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and Dr. Nish Koka, different cardiologists and epidemiologists and outsourced to them. And to the degree that any might of them might turn out to be wrong on some things, I, I will hold them accountable if that turns out to be true. And if there's something that I got wrong um, that someone wants to alert me to, and, and there have been, there hasn't been a ton of pushback. Um, I mean, there have been some people who have been critical. Sam Harris and I have had a long form back and forth over email for several months, we've gone you know, back and forth and really vigorously debated in, in good faith and with love and respect and compassion on these very controversial topics. And that, that's probably the, so Mark Cuban, Sam Harris, I mean, those are probably the cases where I've really had my ideas tested. And in my opinion, from my biased perspective, I, I've been right on those topics. And those guys have been fatally wrong uh, on those on those topics and have failed to 
correct their reviews, in my opinion. Is there anything that Sam Harris specifically said that maybe moved your opinion at all? Um, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Th there is one thing not to say it's, it's not that he, not that I changed my mind because of him, but definitely an emphasis that he helped put for me was like, okay, you know, for me, yes, the public health authorities failed and they pushed dangerous and ineffective vaccines on the population without having reliable safety data. And that should be widely condemned, and we should not trust Pfizer and Moderna and the CDC that the way that we did. Um, and we should be honest about risks and benefits for these pharmaceutical procedures or, or interventions, rather. But at the same time, there is this growing anti-vax cult that doesn't want to believe anything ever from public health authorities and you know, it engages in just wildly hyperbolic rhetoric about the vaccines being a a genocidal effort to to kill people. Like, like I, I know people who think that the apocalypse is coming and that genocide was committed. And while it's slowly going to be more and more people are going to be dying off because of the vaccine, and it's it's not impossible, by the way. But it's the the rhetoric that's used, like Pfizer, Moderna, like wanted to kill people, and the CDC and the FDA wanted to harm people it's like there's some people that have just gone too far out on in conspiratory right. in, in, in conspiracy territory and sam is right to be worried about this epidemic of misinformation um out there where people aren't trusting elections they aren't trusting any you know any vaccine period and but but the solution to that is not saying those people are wrong you know just hammering down on these people and saying that they're wrong about everything and that they're conspiracy theorists. It's to say, oh, hey, we got this wrong. We got these variables crucially wrong. We were wrong to push mask mandates and lockdowns and vaccine mandates on the population. We apologize. You know, we apologize for every young male and every young female, you know, who experienced a vaccine side effect when there was no clear benefit to them. You know, we apologize for lockdowns, destroying our economy that that's that's the way out is humility and conceding where we got wrong and then you're in a better position to critique the conspiracy theorists but if you yourself aren't admitting that you got things fatally wrong you are in no position to critique those people on the other side that have, have plunged into unreason because you're just or on the same continuum of just lunacy as they are you're you're, you're you've 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 gotten core facts wrong and you won't admit you're wrong and you want to complain about misinformation when your podcast, Sam Harris's podcast, propagated so much misinformation during the pandemic and he's focused on misinformation on the other side. It's like, okay, man, well, first look in the mirror and see what you got wrong and then you'll be in a better position to critique others. But currently, you, you need to look in the mirror and see you know, the experts and the scientists that you platformed that got things completely wrong um, and have failed to correct um, their views on the matter. There should be a, a true reconciliation on that front, and I've, I'm, 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 I'm interested in engaging with Sam um, uh, in public and having a conversation with him, and actually really pushing him on some of these points in a way that I don't think Lex Friedman or Chris Williamson or Russell Brand were able to do in their interviews with him, where they kind of mildly push back or kind of push back, but the conversation was just too sprawling to actually drill down on some of the core 
um, disagreements. How do you avoid, you've talked about it a few times, echo chambers, because people, uh, you get influenced by individuals. Joe Rogan's retweeting you. It's all of a sudden like, oh my gosh, like I'm getting retweeted by the goat. Like I'm, yeah. that can be so encouraging. How do you make sure that your positions are solid and not founded on the community you found on Substack or the influences of, of other individuals that it's, it's based on the facts? Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm always just so, skeptical of everything. I'm skeptical of religion. I'm skeptical of science. I'm, skept I'm skeptical of, of claims Christians make and atheists make and, you know, epidemiologists make and pe pe people across society. My default is I don't know the answers and I'm not willing to just blindly trust you on faith or because you have a degree from Harvard you know, in, in, you know, sociology or epidemiology, I, I want to carefully analyze these ideas and see where you're coming from and look at the data for myself and compare that to other perspectives and then, you know, come to my own view and understanding of these complex topics rather than just trusting, you know, one side over the other. And, you know, Everyone is vulnerable to audience capture and getting things wrong and kind of forming their own ideological echo chamber. But I'm, you know, w one thing that I can guarantee to my readers is that I'm always going to stick to certain foundational principles and be skeptical um, and willing to push consensus on a wide range of topics. Like currently right now, I'm working on a piece about how France, Germany, and other countries are wrongly criminalizing uh, pro-Palestinian protests because of their connection to Hamas and terrorist activity. If you value free speech, it, sh it shouldn't be just for COVID protests. It shouldn't just be for the Freedom Convoy. It, it, sh it should also be for people on the pro-Palestinian side, even if you totally disagree with them, even if you don't think they're rightly and sufficiently condemning Hamas, which they should. I, I can disagree with... You know, like you know, BLM Chicago, you know, re, you know, put out their their poster saying that they're pro Palestine, and there's literally an illustration of a guy on a you know paraglider, um, uh, and you know, Hamas terrorists that came down on paragliders and conducted this atrocious massacre, right? And it's like BLM Chicago, you are completely wrong on this point, and just horrifically wrong, and you are embarrassing yourself. You should apologize, and and one of the chapters did kind of deliver this semi-apology, which which I don't think was sufficient. But there have been protests across university campuses and across Canada that are very pro-Palestine that I don't think are sufficiently anti-Hamas and anti you know what the atrocity that was just committed. And I think those people, you know, their ideas should be condemned, and we should disagree with them where necessary, but they should still protest. They should still be. They should still have the right to protest in favor of their views. And France and Germany are absolutely wrong to criminalize these protests. And for the mayor of Toronto, she came out and said, "You know, these protesters don't have their permits, and it might be suggesting that it might be illegal." She's wrong to do that. Even if I agree with the mayor of Toronto that those protests, and I, you know, I haven't looked super carefully, but at least some of the protests in Canada have contained distasteful ideas and have not sufficiently and adequately condemned Hamas, um, in my view. And, and we should have a rational conversation about immigration and 
can we just let in endless numbers of people from the Islamic world and other areas of the world that have radically differing views on women's rights and gay rights and how we should conduct society? Is it right to just let in those people um, just, you know, endlessly, you know, open our doors wide open without reconciliation of ideas and without vetting, you know, liberal ideas that we value here in the West so much, such as, you know, gay people should not be thrown off buildings, that women should not have to be forced into compliance and have to wear, you know, facial garments. Like these values are important. Free speech and freedom of religion are important. And we should talk about issues of people coming in that don't share those values. That's totally on the table. But what's not on the table is banning those pe- people from protesting because they're wrong. And then that's something that I know is going to challenge some of my readers. And I've seen people like Dave Rubin, um, who I've been on the show many times, and I, I you know, I, I really like the guy. He came out uh, in a tweet and said, um, you know, basically supporting France and Germany um, outlawing these protests. And I think he said the West might have a chance. And it, clearly he was supporting that. And I think he was wrong about that. So... I'm willing to challenge people on sort of my side or in my sort of chambers of influence if I disagree with them on principle, which, you know, on this point, um, protests should be allowed and we should extend free speech to people that we disagree with. And that in some conservative circles seems to have been a bit lost recently with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I think. The big issue is likely like the people we're pushing against is because the fight is like, the argument is that it's terrorism, and so they're protesting and they're standing with people they view as terrorists. And yeah. you're not allowed to encourage terrorism. Like acts of violence is not something you're, you you have a right to free speech for. Right. Yeah. Well, but that that's not everyone though. Just saying the way France and Germany have just outlawed all pro-Palestinian protests and the way people don't want these protests to happen. There are you can totally disagree with them, but there are people that are totally against what Hamas did, but think that, you know, the, the Israeli response is excessive and wrong. And, you know, what Israel Israel's doing, um, you know, dropping bombs into Gaza, and there's horrific images coming out of Gaza for what's happening, and that the response from Israel is excessive and extremist. There are people who think that, that think that the Israeli blockade um, and that, you know, what, what, the, how the government in Israel is operating and how they're responding to this crisis is totally wrong mm-hmm. and that there is injustice in Gaza. Those views are totally on the table. And, and I'm afraid and worried that some people on the right want, you know, in their casting of all pro-Palestinian protests and being outlawed and wrong and, 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 and shouldn't happen, you're including people that have views that are absolutely on the table and should be debated and talked about and not outlawed. Right. That makes sense. And it overlaps with your understanding yeah. of uh, the vaccines, which is that we should be able to have these conversations. My my next question is around interviews with Brett Weinstein, trigonometry, uh, things are going well. So I'm just curious as to where you're heading and what you hope to see. Yeah, I'm, I'm just continuing uh, my work. Uh, on Substack, primarily the illusion of consensus, doing podcasts and articles there. A lot of articles, I think, are going to be in the free speech, free speech, anti-censorship vein, and writing to some degree still about public health and the reckless uh, push for what I view as dangerous and ineffective uh, pharmaceutical uh, I- interventions for 
primarily young, healthy people, um, but also more and more in that same vein, talking about the way our society wants to numb, medicate, and just pharmaceutically put a Band-Aid on complex issues like depression, ADHD, anxiety, the more and more, just like COVID, the mainstream solution to those problems, the kind of institutionalized psychiatric pharmaceutical response to those problems, I think is quite dangerous and flawed and completely wrong. Like the way so many of my friends are medicated, you know, have, you know, are taking antidepressants, uh, anxiety medications, ADHD medications is the new thing. Like so many people are on Adderall and Ritalin and are just being pushed by their psychiatrists to take these medications because, you know, they're having a hard time focusing their, they're having a hard time uh, focusing in their lives. And well, well, why is that? Well, why are they not on it? Why are they unable to focus? Is it because they don't like their job? They feel like their energies are being you know, mismatched with the occupation that they're choosing and that they need to reorient their life. They need to look at their anxiety and, and change the way that they interface with themselves and with other people and look at their childhood trauma and, and, um, you know, understand where they came from and why they're here and why, you know, reality is not what they want it to be. And they're, you know, struggling to pay attention. Like that's a common problem with ADHD. And I, I greatly suffer from that is I have a really hard time focusing and paying attention unless I'm talking to Aaron Pete on the, <laughs> on the podcast here, this is my free advertisement for you. Um, but it's like when you, when you have ADHD, it's very, very hard to focus on, things that are just ordinary tasks and things that are uh, mundane or monotonous. But it's like, well, why do I have that? Well, when I was a kid, I, I learned to tune out of reality consistently because reality was quite harsh and difficult growing up as a kid. And this is Dr. Gabor Mate's work um, on this topic is how we learn these behavioral patterns. We learn these things from our environment, our, our traumas enforce and inform who we are today. And this idea of someone like me who really struggles with anxiety and ADHD and uh, to a lesser degree and depression and psychosomatic chronic pain, it's like go to my psychiatrist or go to my doctor or kind of a mainstream professional and they'll put me on ADHD meds. They'll put me on antidepressants and they might recommend CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which can be effective, but that's not actually going to address deep-rooted traumas that I've experienced that have informed my sort of, uh, maladaptive behaviors that have created this kind of what we call ADHD or anxiety. And so I need to look at that. And, and thankfully, you know, there's a great clinic in Vancouver, Thrive, Thrive Downtown, where I'm doing this work, um, deep dives into my childhood, into my behavior, into my influences um, with my counselor. Um, occasionally involving psychedelics, which I think can be very, very healing and illuminating. But th this is going to be my focus, I think, more and more is the way our society and the way our institutions work in preventing us from actually living healthy, happy, joyful, and well-connected lives. I, more and more, I'm, I'm realizing that the same problem with COVID you know, not addressing obesity, the obesity epidemic and the diabetes epidemic and sedentary lifestyle and people not you know eating wholesome, clean foods. They just put mRNA vaccines for everyone. But actually, the, the problem is much, much deeper than that. So I'm going to be doing more and more investigations into big pharma and public health and corruption within our medical system. 
um, as well as continuing to hammer on the the free speech and anti-censorship uh, 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 topic. I think you're a huge inspiration for people who want to find their own voice. I think that's becoming more and more important with organizations like the CBC suffering and looking for more money to continue to uh, share the same type of information. I think voices like yours, at least being able to be independent and share it and through mediums like Substack allow an opportunity to make money and make a living off of sharing your voice, which I think is so valuable. I'm just wondering what advice you have for individuals who are interested in pursuing a similar path, who are interested in some of the topics you've talked about or maybe interested in something else and they're looking to start to share their voice. What advice do you have? I would say read a lot, listen to a lot of podcasts, you know, get a wide range of perspectives. Um, excuse me, go on this. I encourage people to kind of take their life as an adventure towards truth and to find out what's, what's really going on in reality. If, if we can ever gain an objective perception of reality, whatever your opinion on that is, but you, you, we should be striving towards better understanding ourselves and each other and looking across religious, political, and scientific um, backgrounds and really trying to find out what's true and what's real and what's beneficial and what's dangerous and harmful uh, on the other side. And I encourage people to be bold and audacious and activate their inner honey badger as as gad sad says uh, be, be be unafraid of of the social justice mob um because that that's something that that cost me a lot in the short term uh, and was quite painful as we've talked about but in the long term it's been liberating or to the point where i'm not afraid of saying anything right if i think of if i come to some perspective on something that i think is controversial I, i'm going to say it I'm not afraid to to kind of come out anymore and, and have these views. And I think people should challenge orthodoxy where they can, and whether that's conservative or progressive. And I think people should be open-minded and acknowledge that whatever view they have, I mean, a lot of what we talked about earlier about, um, you know, racial injustice and changing behavior and government policy, a lot of what I said, you know, goes against what my default views were. Um, five, six years ago, right. Right? I, I had differing views, but then I read different economists, different thinkers, different, um, intellectuals on the topic and have molded my perspective accordingly. And if I, you know, f come across some new piece of data that points me in a different direction, I'm willing to go there. And so I, I encourage people to be open-minded and to, um, look at different sources, read a lot of different information and, if, and, and when it comes to the pragmatics of doing what I'm doing, um, really be bold and put yourself out there and and not be afraid to reach out. I mean, that, that's one thing that, that I did. And I, I, was, I was thinking about this the other day when um, uh, someone on a podcast I was listening to, they were also asked about what advice they would give. And I'm like, I was thinking about what's worked for me. It's been like, Sending the emails to Sam Harris and, and Jordan Peterson and D, you know, it was re reaching out to Joe with my articles, Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro and Dave Rubin and Brett Weinstein, like like really putting in the effort to reach out and to show my work. And obviously, the prerequisite to that is to having done good work and having you know put out these big pieces and done the research. But at a certain point, 
um, you really want to be unafraid to put yourself out there and to show your art, show your creativity, show what you've done to the world um, and just find a community and build more and more connections. I mean, that's really what I've been doing, build, building more and more connections and reaching out to people. And suddenly it's, you know, small editors and bigger editors and suddenly the New York Post and the Globe and Mail, you know, places I've written for. And then you have your own platform and you reach out to Michaela. Michaela Peterson wants to have you on your uh, have you on your podcast. And then it's Jordan Peterson and Jordan knows who you are. And then from Jordan, you Brett and Joe. It's like building from the ground up, building that confidence yeah. and being courageous and bold in, in reaching out to people um, and showing them what you're worth and, and what you're capable of. That's so fantastic. How can people follow along with your journey? Uh, Twitter, Ravrora1. Um, and Instagram is rav.aurora, but I, I do have a private account, um, which I'm, I'm, I'm contemplating at what point I want to just unleash the monster and go public. But I, I'm worried it'll, it'll be bad for my mental health because Twitter is already just crazy enough with just so many DMs and connections and all these debates happening. And I, I kind of try to keep Instagram as private and insulated as I can. But um, I, I generally, you know, people in Chilliwack or people that I know of or people that know me, they can... If they want to reach out to me, they can DM me on Instagram or Twitter. Um, and yeah, that, that's primarily where I'm at. And uh, in terms of my work, they can subscribe to my Substack, uh, The Illusion of Consensus, um, and follow my podcast and my articles there. I really enjoyed doing this. This was a fantastic conversation. I think shows the importance of having nuanced conversation. I appreciate you being willing to take the time and, and have this conversation. Yeah, of, of course. And I, I'm glad we finally did this. And I apologize for keeping you waiting for a year, but I'm glad we did wait. And I'm, I was, it was in the right headspace to to have a conversation like this. And I, I look forward to uh, to checking back in maybe a year or two later and see, yeah. see, see where things change. So well, you were worth the wait. Yeah. Thanks, man.